Hey everybody, this is Joe Swanson. My guest tonight is legendary entertainer, I would say, not just tattooer, Lyle Tuttle. We're uh, in Lyle's kitchen. I am pleased to be a guest. We just ate a plate of spaghetti and ravioli. It was amazing. Thank you, sir. We were talking about art that you have on your wall, uh, a collector that you started collecting in 1960, uh, Frank Kochi. Tell, tell, you just told me a story about your first introduction to him, which was pretty interesting. Um, tell me about your first introduction to his work. And, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing stuff. You have about a hundred plus pieces from him. Marvin Lindenstein was a transplanted New Yorker and an artist ilk, you know, and, uh, worked at a dirty bookstore down at the corner of 7th and Market. And my tattoo shop, which I had for 29 and a half years, uh, was between the bus station, between Market and Mission, um, on 7th Street. So I'd be out going out to get something to eat or whatever. And um, maybe I was in the dirty bookstore buying something. Who knows? But anyhow, um, you and I became friends and we'd, have dinner back and forth at one another's home with our wives. And so he had went up into Upper Grand Avenue here in San Francisco and ran across a gallery. It was Ed Gibson's gallery. And he ran across this uh, artwork. And uh, I heard some art intellectuals one time call it Neo-Germanic Impressionism. <laughs> Hot stuff, huh? Well, I guess impressionistic art is that the subjects, the people in it, don't have an expression. And uh, these two on the wall that you're looking at right now, one's a fish, one is two mugs, and, um, and there's, these don't have. So he had bought a painting, and it was hanging on the wall in his dining room, and I sat there and looked at it all evening, and it was a black woman standing on about a pyramid of watermelons. And um, so I sat there and looked at that all evening and, and, and fell in love with it or just my, the coachy paintings that hang on the walls and I have like 67 of them here in the flat. Um, they're easy to live with. I mean, they're tranquil to me. They, I'm, I'm not a hyper person, but they I'll say they mellow me out or something. But it's my mother said once that, um, well, I'll put it the way I say it than how she said it. I said, my mother told me once, never will me any. She heard me say that one time. She said, I didn't say that. She said, if you were nice enough to give me one, I'd be nice enough to give it back to you. <laughs> so an Iowa farm girl didn't care for coaching. He had a big following with, um, I started collecting him in 1960. And um, he had a big following of World Airways, which is a big, and most of their flight attendants, stewardesses in those days, mm -hmm. uh, were from Finland, Denmark, Germany, dramatic people. And uh, so what happens is that he had a big following with people. And he probably painted six or 7,000 paintings because hmm. he was highly prolific. I've seen him have 
four paintings going once, and none of them had any correlation with one another. <laughs> Most artists develop a trick, and they move it around on the canvas, not coaching everything. But then people will say, well, that reminds me of a Chagall. No, that's Stephen Chagall. He's a martial arts guy. <laughs> but, you know, Benny House. So Kochi looked at art books and stuff and absorbed it because he was an artist, and mm -hmm. so he liked art. So I don't think he was – he wasn't in there copying anything. Mm -hmm. So twice a year in June on his birthday and in Christmas, he had two parties. And would he later moved into a, a – he was a retired merchant seaman. Moved into a um, Clementina Towers and it was down by Moscone Center. Um, he would have the walls plastered with his paintings. And he had this party. And he bought a whole bunch of cheap booze and everything else. So people would go in, and as they bought them, he would dig it, get into a closet and dig another painting out and put it on there. <laughs> time at the party was over, the walls were bare, practically. Wow. I won't say for sure that they were totally bare, but he sold a lot of paintings. Mm -hmm. But he sold them reasonably. Mm -hmm. Well, you first went and saw him when Marvin, you saw that painting. You said, I got to meet the guy. And you went and, uh, you went and met him. Yeah. So Marvin Littenstein took me down. And we met him. And he lived in a Westchester Hotel right off of Market Street on 3rd Third Street, and uh, so it was an old hotel. It had like a, the passenger elevator was like a freight elevator where you got on it, didn't have a cage around it, and you closed the accordion gate and went up, and he was on the third floor. And his apartment was just plastered with paintings. Mm -hmm. I even, I won't say for sure, but he might have even had a few hanging out in the hall. Um, <laughs> so, he came to the United States in 1935. He was from Poston, Czechoslovakia, and landed in Galveston, Texas. And that was a big, actually, importation of people coming into the United States, like New York City and Ellis Island, but Galveston, Texas also. Mm -hmm. And um, so he had an uncle over here or something, and, and he went to work on a dairy farm. And he got, I guess they didn't have mechanical in 1925 in the mechanical milking machine. So he became a real expert milker <laughs> and then went to the state fair. And he was the runner-up in the Texas State Milking Contest. Yeah. Then he gravitated to Los Angeles and he went to work as a security guard in the Max Edit Studios. And was around on a lot of productions like... Um, uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, The Gold Rush. Hmm. That was done up at Lake Tahoe. He was in that. Um, or not in that, but worked as a, a person in and around. Mm -hmm. Then he became a merchant seaman. Then he retired. Hmm. Was here in San Francisco. He did, I saw one painting that he did in the Max Senate Studios that was, because uh, he would, if you're a security guard, you're rotating. So he would go through the art department. And his father in Czechoslovakia was a artist. I think he was a sculptor. And his uncle was a painter. So we had an art background. And um, so that's, but 
great coaching. And Amazing. I love him. You, you've been being influenced by <clears throat> culture like that here in San Francisco for a very since you were a kid. Yeah. You came. You told me you came to San Francisco um, on your first trip. I believe you said it was 11 years old. No, I was 14. 14. Okay, 14 years old on a trip to find out what these guys, these sailors that you had seen coming back to Ukiah had. They had tattoos and they had something and they, you were seeking that out. Talk about that time and, and well, your influence okay. with San Francisco because it, it must have been an overwhelming as a 14-year-old kid coming into, that, into the well, city. Actually, uh, in 1939, and then it, it was so popular that it extended it to 1940, was um, the Pacific International Exposition on Treasure Island, which now is over there, and it become a Navy base, and it become this, but it's, it, it, it's Yerba Buena Island is uh, right in the middle of the Bay Bridge, and then to the north of it is Treasure Island. And uh, now it's like condominiums and stuff over there. But anyhow, it wound up, and they have a hell of a good flea market. I haven't made it over there yet, because I love flea markets. I'm a junkie. You like to get stuff. You like to have stuff and collect stuff. You said to me tonight, if you have two of something, you got a collection of it. Exactly. And then you really don't have a collection when you have to inventory it. That's <laughs> above and beyond. Yes. But anyhow, so my parents come down and seen the Pan Pacific, not the Pan Pacific, the Pacific International Exposition. The Pan Pacific Exposition was out here in 1912. But um, they didn't take me to that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, uh, so I looked across the bay and I seen those tall buildings and bright lights and stuff. And I knew there was some chicanery going on over there that wasn't going on in Boomville, California, right? which is about 120 miles north of San Francisco on Highway 101. I said on an interview show one time, and I got the raspberries from people up in Ukiah, that you get on the Golden Gate Bridge and you go north 100 and some miles, and when you can't hear anything, you know you're there. Well, I w they, they said, what are you knocking? the area for I said I'm not knocking the area god damn it you live in this city and you get your ears goddamn violated every day with with all this stuff and you go up there and you can't hear nothing you're in high cotton mm -hmm. you know or high nowadays high marijuana plants because <laughs> that's the southern reaches of the emerald triangle they got the only person up there that doesn't raise weed <laughs> and doesn't smoke weed I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, a, right. I'm yeah. not for popular causes. What was that first experience like? You told me the first time you went to San Francisco and you were not much for a 14-year-old kid to do. No. You were, you, I, I cite on that yeah. uh, bus station, too, because that was your home. Well, here's what happened was that I was 10 months and no, I was 10 years and two months old to the day when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I was born October 7th, 1931, and on December 7th, 1941, they bombed Pearl Harbor. So, all through the war, it would be guys returning that had, for various reasons, leaves or been discharged or something, 
But they'd have a tattoo dribbled around on her arms or something. Not sleeves or anything like that. They'd just have a tattoo or something. Some big, some small. An anchor or a star or some damn thing. And uh, so I was in my testosterone development period. I mean, I was 10 years old when it started. And um, boy, I'll tell you, those were hot stuff. And then in checking around and asking, the closest place that tattooing was put on was in Frisco. Now that town that I live in, Ukiah, and was raised in, has three tattoo shops. Who'd you, at that age, who'd you ask and inquire with about where can I see well, that? anybody had a tattoo or something You would just like ask that? him, hey, mister, what's... <laughs> exactly. You know, I've never met a stranger in my life, so it didn't, uh, that was easy. Uh-huh. So I found out the closest place you could get one, and I wasn't inquiring for myself to get one, but just curious. So then when I was 14, and I just was enthralled with San Francisco, and I went to San Francisco a couple other times because back in those days they didn't have airplanes or something. My grandmother came out here, um, and um, they didn't have airplanes, you know, airlines train was the mode of transportation so you'd have to come to san francisco so what had happened is they would unload over in oakland they there was railroads that come into san francisco but they were freight they wasn't passengers and um then they'd come across on a ferry and get off at the ferry building so good i was all eyes you know looking around so at 14, and my parents trusted me enough, I was not a runaway or, you know, juvenile delinquent or nothing. My parents trusted me enough to come down on the Greyhound bus. And when I got up, I was 14. And when I got off that Greyhound bus, I didn't let that bus station get out of my sight. I, that was a point of relative positioning the whole day I was there because Boy, if I lost that bus station, I'd been stuck in the big city forever. And I did know my phone number, though. It was 378W at home. But so I found out a kid at 14, there isn't too much you could do. And uh, you could get a shoe shine, you could buy a hot dog, you could drink a Coca-Cola, you could do, you know, and then look around at the sights. But while you're seeing the sights, and that bus station is just off of Market Street, and that's the main drag, and it had arcades. It was 1946. There was sailors, marines, soldiers walking up and down the street. These arcades had shooting galleries in them. They had a shoeshine stand up front. And so I guess I'd run out of things to do, so I got a shoeshine. And I'm sitting up there getting that shoeshine, and I look in the back of this place, and there's a magic word across a small booth back there. And it was T-A-T-O-O-I-N-G. And the minute I got that shoe shined, straightened the guy out for it, I went speeding back there, and I looked at the door, and, and it's this little booth, and these walls were all bespeckled with designs because it was flash, they call it. And those, that's designs that the tattoo artist draws, and they're sales aids. So you would pick out the design off of that. 
And then I, I was looking around, and then the guy's reading the newspaper leading up in there, and he looked at me, and he says, what in the hell do you want? <laughs> and I went, uh, blah, 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 and I was $3.50, and I pointed it out, and it was a heart with mother in it. And I paid him off, sit out in the chair, and he had that on me like bingo. But I didn't go down there to get tattooed. I went down there to to see the city, the big city. So I had no idea where, when I stepped across the thresholds of that tattoo shop, where it was taking me. <laughs> I mean, I went into a magical mystery tour, vortex that has taken me all over the world. You know, just... C could you imagine then what it, has done and continues to do for you now? No, I had no idea. In fact, every day is a surprise yet what tattooing's done for me or is doing for me. Um, but, you know, I lived in the greatest era of tattooing. Nobody, no tattoo artist in the world will ever have the time and space that I've had. Tattooing has always prospered during wartime up until the modern era now. Hmm. Um, war time. Tattooing is connected with uh, uh, warriors. It's tattooed, uh, you know, connected with sailors in the sea. Mm -hmm. uh, all for good reasons. Because somewhere along the line back, tattooing goes back long before recorded history. I mean, it could have helped biopeds us homo sapiens uh there's no proof or evidence that crow magnets got tattooed but um homo sapiens or sapiens i, I prefer to call them because the word dumb bastard wasn't <laughs> utilized thoroughly till the human race got here um it could have helped us become gregarious with with tribal marks and things you know you could have had all across your chest hip hip array for cave 37 <laughs> or something who knows so somewhere along the line the ancients figured out that the warriors that were tattooed had a better survival rate in battle than untattooed ones well when you tattoo you break the skin and you're sticking a foreign matter in there and we have an antibody system and we have a macrophagia system that protects us from outside forces. Antibody systems, your antibody system protects you from germs and viruses and things. And your macrophagia system uh, identifies foreign matter and carries it off. So you're developing both of these when you get tattooed because, and it was nothing, not such a thing as sterilization. Uh, they use like a crude charcoal probably from various things. And um, so it developed both of these. And so they finally figured out that the ones that were tattooed had a better survival rate. And then of course, well, ancient man tattoos was, did four things. They placated the gods, scared your enemies, uh, developed your antibody systems, and um, 
I'd had, I haven't mouthed that in a long time. Uh, but it's, I didn't think about it. But anyway, there's four things that are very positive mm -hmm. that um, tattooing does, or man has used it for down through the centuries. Hmm. It's crazy. It's, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, you talk about um, that deep meaning behind tattooing and, you know, warrior spirit. And I was just, you've been hand tapped. I was just hand tapped by uh, Ricky Boy Suluape Novera Jr. out of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. You've been hand tapped. You told me a little bit about your experience. Talk about that experience because you've been all over this world. You've been tattooed by some of the greats in American tattooing history and some of the greats in Polynesian history and Japanese history. Um, talk about that time being hand tapped and, and what it was like being over there. Well, you asked me <coughs> earlier this evening how I wound up down there in Samoa. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm tattooing down by the Greyhound bus station. It was even before that. It was down on 135 7th Street. I was down there for about a year and a half looking for a permanent location. Um, one that I, fly by night tattoo artist, spent 29 and a half years in the same location. And the only thing that knocked me out of it was the Loma Prieta earthquake. And um, so there was these big, jovial, large people. The Samoas supposedly has the, they have the largest bone structure. Their skeleton weighs more than any race in the world. They're big people. And every man, woman, child, they had an adoration for tattooing. And there was even a preacher with them one time, a Samoan preacher, and he liked tattoos. And God, I was living in a society where everybody sort of looked down on your nose. Because when I went home with that tattoo at 14, that heart with mother, I actually was admonished by a couple, 14, I won't say they were girlfriends, they were friends that I went to school with, that their mothers, you know, they just, it was like I went to San Francisco and got stung by the devil because there's this goddamn stigmata mm -hmm. that tattooing has on it. So tattoos are connected with the sea. We'll, back, we'll get back to Samoans here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but they uh, was connected with the sea because it was the New World Explorers that rediscovered tattooing because the Catholic Church, they don't agree with something, they expunge it. So they had prohibitions against tattooing in Europe because they tattooed earlier in Europe. But then um, they wound up putting some prohibitions and we could go into that for hours, but um, we won't. So anyhow, these big brown people coming in there, jovial big brown people, and they were, I found out they were from Samoa, and I found out some of their culture and the tattoos that they had put on them, and they have a traditional tattoo that goes back way off. Pa'a Samoa is before they were discovered. Mm -hmm. Now, all these people from pre-Christian societies that were discovered didn't know that they were lost. 
but they got discovered by us, you know, mm-hmm. by the Europeans. And um, so anyhow, um, I, I got to go there somewhere, someday. And the one name that kept coming up all the time uh, when I was talking to about Samoa was Tusi Leo. And Tusi Leo was in Samoa, you have a, a, a Matai or a chief. And he is born into that position. It has a lineage to it. But then there's also a guy that is an integral part of the village. And they all live in villages and they live on the shoreline. Nobody's in the interior. He's called the talking chief. I forget how you say talking, but Matthias. So Tusi Leone was in the village of Siumu. And that's right across the island on Upalu. That's across the island uh, from Appia, which is the only town in western Samoa, which consists of two main islands, Upalu and Savai. And so I had his name and everything. And so when I went to Samoa, I... Uh, hopped in a taxi cab and said that I wanted to go to Siumu. So the way we went across the island. And the taxi driver was a tour guide in a way. And I'm talking about an older man that spoke English because Western Samoa had been at one time a German settlement and then went to English. In fact, during World War I, there was an American battleship, a British battleship, and a German battleship squared off in the harbor of Appia. Well, a hurricane or a typhoon or something came up, and the German battleship got grounded and sank. So for years, and I was privileged to be over there early enough to see it, the mass stuck up out of the water. And at low tide, high tide, you've seen more or less of it. Now they've filled that whole section in. Hmm. And when they did, they went and whacked the masts off and stuff. But anyhow, I went over there and got over there. Um, no, wait a minute. That was another thing. So I got over there and... Uh, Asked for Tusi Leo. Well, everybody knew Tusi Leo because he was the talking chief. And so he, he talked for the village. Mm-hmm. Any business had to be outside of it. So he had to be glib of tongue, you know? And uh, so everybody knew him. And so I was directed to his folly because they live in thatched huts over there. And um, met him, showed him my tattoos, blew his mind all the hell and so i you had you were how heavily tattooed at this point fully covered so i didn't get the regular samoan they they call it <clears throat> hey uh-huh. it's hard to say you have to stop and reorganize your vocal cords uh and a pay uh, is also the big fruit eating bat so sometimes the tattoo is called the flying fox because the big fruit-eating bats with like a three-foot wingspan, 
They have a face on them like a fox. Our little bats are ugly little boogers. But uh, these look like foxes. So anyhow, that... Uh, so then, if you know, there's, it's hard to cross certain barriers. Mm -hmm. Like a white guy with an afro looks sort of silly. Uh, a European or a, we'll say white guys, um, looks sort of funny with a with a full Japanese tattoo. You know, you you have parameters. There's a word for that, but I've heard it and forgot it. But. Um, I'm 83. I forgot a lot of things. <laughs> I got a coffee cup that says, I've done it all, seen it all, and I just wish I could remember it all. <laughs> but anyhow, they, um, um, <clears throat> so I went ahead, and I was, was covered, my torso was covered to the waist. Mm -hmm. The Samoan tattoo goes way up high, and there's two points that stick out. So the top of the tattoo is a war canoe. And then below that is a triangle, and that's the bear. That's the bat. And then every one of them is, only variation is by different artists, but it's the same thing, and they all tell sort of a story. So I was, so the tattoo goes from right under the Orioles to the Ds. So I couldn't get a full Samoan tattoo if I wanted to. It didn't have room. So I went ahead and had an op art design with all black, no color, put from my knees to the waist. Hmm. So when I went over there and flashed my wares, my tattoos, um, they just flipped them out. But with that tribal type of tattooing from my knees to my waist, mm -hmm showed that I was leading in their direction. Did the same thing up in the Malaysian Peninsula because they do it, not the same design, but a like design mm -hmm. of going from the knees to the waist or above. Did you, you were heavily tattooed at the time when you went to Samoa and you got the, um, got tattooed from your knees up as much as you I could. Had it already you had it already so, so what i did was i got tattooed across the small of the back right and that was like a baptismal got it and i got tattooed up in the malaysian peninsula also okay. and that was another baptismal then if you look in perry's book published in 1933 called i don't know what the hell it's called now but it's perry the word it's tattoo uh -huh. then it's hamley's book 20, 1925 was tattooing and its significance. The one in the 33 was, I don't know. Yeah. It's called Tattoo, written by uh, Albert Perry. Um, so there was also in some certain place down in South America that dancing girls have body painting that goes from the knees up, huh. almost like the Samoan tattoo. But you know, Columbus discovered America, but there was people over here a hell of a lot longer, further back in history than Columbus. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing new under the sun is the history you don't know. Yeah. But the Asians come over here, and uh, the Japanese, and some were blown off, of course. And, mm -hmm. You know, but um, so that 
God, I don't know, some, some Samoans might have come over here, went down there, and then they started painting their dancing girls. Who knows? Yeah. There's a, um, you know, finding your way around in the Pacific Ocean wasn't that big of a deal in a way because all of those islands are most of them volcanic. They've got higher land masses on them. They're not, well, there's some of them that are flat, but there's some of them that's got some fairly tall mountains on them. Well, condensation settles and you get clouds. So you're out there paddling around in your war canoe or something and you got blown off a course. You just keep going until you run across some clouds and head for the clouds. So uh, it didn't take a rocket scientist, but then in on the island of Fife, there's four societies in the Pacific Ocean, in the islands. There's Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. And Polynesia goes from New Zealand to Easter Islands and up to Hawaii, and they call it the, the Polynesian Triangle. But they all practice tattooing through the ages. But their migration to those different islands was way back. And so their languages are sort of the same but different because of the isolation, because they wasn't traveling back and forth. And their tattooing varied, <laughs> you know? Then if you go down into Tahiti, which is off into another section, um, and the Marquesas Islands, but they all tattoo. Mm -hmm. But if you got hungry, you, you climbed a coconut tree. <laughs> And the weather was warm the year round. So it's funny, and I'm not saying this on a racial standpoint or nothing, but the people that achieved this world was people that lived in non-temperate climates, mm -hmm. like your Scandinavians. They had to have their wits about them to, to store food and everything to make it through the winter. Mm -hmm. But down in the Pacific and the tropics and the, you know, all you had to do is climb a coconut tree. And if you were untattooed back in Pa'a Samoa a long time ago, before the advent, before they were discovered, um, you had to have that tattoo to even go in and make kava in the chief's councils, <laughs> the big parleys, you know to be somebody. And if you, a chief or the village was traveling from point A to point B, and one of the guys with the, oh, got thirsty, he would send an untattooed guy up the coconut tree to get the coconut. It was everything in that culture. It was. Do you, you think, know? I mean, you've seen it in that culture, you've seen it in this culture. What do you think and I want to get to some time. I want to talk about your time tattooing, being on the cover of Rolling Stone, tattooing Janis Joplin. I want to get to all that, but I want to I want to hear about your ideas and what you think the disposition of tattooing is today. You know, because we're sitting here in 2015 talking about this stuff. Right. You know, where do you, where do you see it right now, and maybe what do you see it kind of becoming? Whoa. Right? Deep subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, tattooing now, 
in 2015 has got way too popular. Hmm. Um, huh. I started tattooing in 1949. I got my first tattoo in 1946. Uh, I started tattooing in 1949. Uh, tattoo shops were not in storefronts. Um, they were in arcades, and you had a little little crib in there. And you, if you went to work at one of those cribs and one of those arcades, uh, you went in and found out if there was a chair available. Well, there's a chair available from 8 o'clock in the evening till 4 o'clock in the morning. So those places, a lot of them stayed open 24 hours a day. And because this was hustle bustleville, Market Street, you had just rafts with sailors walking up and down the street, soldiers, servicemen. World War II was just over with. And like I said, tattooing has always made a, a rise and become more popular because back to the warrior class, the antibody systems, the macrophagia systems, then the seafarers that the New World Explorers that rediscovered tattooing and took it back to Europe. And it was booming in port towns, and it was booming across traveling, like the circus and people that would take that idea from the ports across oh, yeah. the countries. It's always in the, in the mystique with tattooing, which is lost today, <clears throat> was the mysticism. Mm -hmm. I always felt that I was the closest thing to a witch doctor that the great unwashed, as the general public, um, could get yeah. in their life. My One of my bosses, um, Vince Pelton, who was taught by Bert Rodriguez out of Santa, Santa Rosa, and he tattooed in Vallejo for many, many years, and that's where I uh, tattooed with him. He always said, you know, I'm a shaman. I'm like a shaman. You know, oh, girl, what's up? I'm a shaman. What do you need? You know, yeah. let's let's talk about it. You know, and he and he just had that personality and that it was the idea you feel it mm -hmm. from your clientele. Mm -hmm. They have this. All this alone. <laughs> <laughs> right. And. Uh, which is something you don't abuse. I mean, it's just nice. I mean. I used to instill that in my customers during the Vietnam War and things when they was going overseas that you're getting, this is a good luck tattoo and you're going to come back. Mm -hmm. But I didn't say it directly, but it was implied. Do you think that's what's being neglected now is that idea that it, it is something that is, well, it's I a fashion statement now. That's what it turned into, a fashion statement. And then people that live today, especially young, I mean, young people, mm -hmm. I mean, the world, can you use F words on your show? Sure. Okay, well, the people that live today, I mean, the world's fucked, just totally fucked. What's different than, than what do you see as different than when you grew up? Population explosion, inflation, mm -hmm. um, is the idea, the sentiment, uh, the uh, the core value system, is that changed? I mean, is is that what we're seeing is different, what, or is it with tattooing? With tattooing, with everything. They just don't have a life to look forward to. 
You know, tattooing was a compulsion. Uh, tattooing will never die. Never. And you know how popular it gets. But what happened was that tattooing got a sh some shots in the arm in the last 40, 50 years. At the time, I've been involved with tattooing for like 65 years. Long time. <laughs> right. That, now, let's put that in perspective. People, we're seeing like what we think as an explosion. Oh, I might have seen the explosion in the 90s. I might, I've seen this explosion right now. We're talking to a person that's seen from a 14-year-old kid in what year? 1946. 1946 through now he's observed tattooing and been involved since a young man 19 or 18 yeah. years old getting your first tattoo 14. at 14 um, but then being involved in the business side of things for that period of time yeah. and I mean well, it's I started tattooing professionally when I was 17 yeah then I tattooed before I went in the Marine Corps because they had a draft system how did you first? How did you get uh, tattooing before you? Let's get into the military stuff and and where that took you. But how did you start tattooing from fourteen, getting that first tattoo, and now going? Man, I need to do this. You know, if you went in and told a tattoo artist that you wanted to be a a tattoo artist, you were actually and tattooing. Yeah, it it had its you know it had its years during. World War Two and everything, and even after World War Two, and then the Korean War started and everything else. Um, but when you wanted to be, to be a tattoo artist, you wanted to find out about. It. You were telling the man, "I want to be your competition." And there was some hard times with tattooing, like during the Depression. Mm -hmm. You had World War One, shot in the arm. There was probably some new people got into it. Then it wound up um, going off into. Um, the flapper era, and that was like boom, boom, boom. It, you know, like there was living on their laurels after the war because it always increases the economy. Wars. Hmm. If it wasn't for wars, we'd be haven't, would, we'd be still running around going boop, 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 like a bunch of monkeys. I mean, all if you look at it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird scenario, but, uh, and I hate the word scenario, but anyhow, it's a weird observation of all development mechanical everything has been achieved through war hmm. they 1903 they invented the airplane my dad seen the best time span in the whole wide world because he got he was born in 1899 he saw him 1903 now he was only four years old but the advent of the airplane. Mm -hmm. They flew into World War One in an airplane that they actually was, they were observation planes. And any combat that they did at the first of the war, they were shooting one another with pistols. <laughs> but four years later, they flew out of the, out of the World War II in 1918 in airplanes that had machine guns that were timed that would shoot through the propeller. Because you have to have it timed or you'd shoot your propeller off. <laughs> Shit. You know? So um, then it went off in the, and then they, there was an overload of um, 
servicemen out of the service, the flapper era, the stock, everything's going crazy. And in 1929, the stock market crashed. Boom. You know, and my dad lost some money because he'd worked all through that, that era. He was a construction superintendent. And, um, but tattoo artists made out fine. You know, they, um, uh, they could trade for pigs and chickens. <laughs> barter, the barter system, because you're dispensing a service. And uh, there are some organizations now that you can go on. Um, I, I don't know anyone because I don't have too much to do with the Internet. The Internet, to me, is an access to eBay, PayPal, and email. Right. I don't have, I'm not on Facebook. But I do own the domain name of I will set on your Facebook.com. Oh. And I made that joke up. And then Mary Jane Hackey, the tattoos in Portland, has Dermasource. She's an artistic tattoo artist, very clever artistic tattoo artist. But she also does cosmetic tattooing. She also works with breast reconstruction and camouflage scars. I mean, she's a, well, Mary Jane Hackey is the smartest woman. She might be the smartest person in the tattoo business. Cause, um, but anyhow, we won't get into that. Um, so I told that joke one time at a party, and it was in Portland, and Mary Jane and I are buds, you know, and she, I had her out of my peripheral vision, and when I said that, I seen her go bingo. I mean, so in a little while, I seen her sort of give her <clears throat> boyfriend the nod, and he took off in a little bit, and he come back, and she, he said to her, it's available. Well, I was keeping up with this because, you know, not the smartest or the sharpest pencil in the box that I'm <laughs> observing. And um, he said, it's available. And she's, well, I haven't bought Lyle for anything. Haven't bought him anything in a long time. Secure it for him for 20 years. So she secured that website for me. I have that. <laughs> now, I ran across, well, I ran across a friend, and we was going to a tattoo convention, Dennis Dwyer, out Tucson, Arizona. And he ran across a couple nerds that he knew. We're in the airport in Dallas-Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. We had all of us had a forty-five minutes, an hour, or something to get to our plane, and so that came out about me owning that. And the guy pulled, reached in his pocket, pulled out his checkbook, and he said, "I'll give you one hundred and fifty grand for it." <laughs> and I said, "Whoa, wait a minute!" I said, "You know, I never thought about selling it, but if I did, I wouldn't sell it for chump change." And in the internet world, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars is chump change. I mean, stuff sells for millions mm -hmm. and it, like that, you know. So here I sit, <laughs> but I'm still not going to sell it for a chump change. Any offers lately? No, but every time I run across the nerd, I feed him the idea. <laughs> and one of these days, the germ is going to take and develop in his in. mind. Yeah. Because you know to write programs and to write something like Facebook? Uh-huh. Long money, <laughs> right. more than one hundred and fifty thousand bucks sure. to write the program and get it on the air. 
but it's goofy enough that it's going to go one of these days. I might be dead and gone and everything, <laughs> but I know where my next meal's coming from. Sure. What was it like tattooing in this city? San Francisco, I have a special, you know, it's got a special place in my heart because I, I came out here on a guest spot. This is a tat- special place, San Francisco. I tattooed at Erno's when Erno was still around, and he was staying. I slept in Erno's oh, for two the, weeks. The, the, his original Erno's, it was right off of Hate Street? Yeah, Hate. Yep, Hayton Fillmore, <clears throat> above. Yeah. Um, it it was above, and he had a little museum the, in there. What was the businesses on the ground floor? It was a little. Uh, the guy that was staying in the place with Erno at the time in the shop in the little museum, um, was working on a little juice spot that was underneath there at that time when I came. And Greg Coles was there. George Campisi was there. Mandy Flynn was back on a guest spot. And there was another girl Freddie that was Corbin working there. Corbin started there. Freddie Corbin was there prior to that. Yeah. Um, but so I had that experience. And then I also worked at Picture Machine when it was still on Geary between 3rd and 4th Avenue. Um, it was owned by Guy. It was ran by. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember. Well, it's funny you mentioned it because Guy Martinook. That guy. Pat's dead. Guy Martinook worked for me at one time. But Pat yep. Martinook was worked for you as well. Machine. Yes. Because I gave him the name, the Picture Machine. Right. Tell tell us how that came about. And uh, I mean, that was all he worked around the time where. And correct me if I'm wrong, you tattooed Janis Joplin. That was around when he was all there at the shop and you had this. Yeah, this shit must have been popping, man, in in San Francisco. You know, it just. uh, Well, the summer of love happened, the whole (laughs) business, happened. you know, Uh, but. I used to have out of. Well, Marvin Littenstein one time had an apartment, and mm-hmm. I remember standing up in the window looking out of this second-floor apartment, smoking a joint. This is back a long time ago. Um, looking at the street sign, and it was at the corner of Hate and Ashbury. Hate Ashbury was nothing. Nowhere. Um... Then on Hate Street, I had a barber. And don't ask me how I got found a barber on Hate Street. but I'm, And it was my barber, and I used to go there wherever I got a haircut. And this is before I let my hair grow and cha-cha-cha, before the hippie movement happened. And, uh, in fact, I had to change barbers because all of a sudden these goddamn long-haired pukes was coming up there on... You couldn't find a parking place. You couldn't nothing. So um, through the whole hippie era, um, I was so busy tattooing and everything. And when you went into my shop on 7th Street that, that I was there so long, you went up 29 steps. You had a hallway. You went down the hallway. And at the end of the hallway, you went into the main tattoo room. It had been originally built as a whorehouse. <laughs> and each room, which was six of them on each floor, and it was two floors of these, had a door that opened up out into this hallway. So some of the, the stairs come up about the middle of it. And in each room, there was a... Um, 
a cabinet affair that had a sink in one door, and on the other door was a small clothes closet, whorehouse, because there was women that come up there, maybe four or five through the years, that come up and was looking around and and could I help you? And I said, well, you know, I'm not interested in the tattoos, but and then I finally got it together, and then I found out these gals had worked up there. They were older women, but they was in San Francisco or something. They was up there for getting a little deja vu. <laughs> and uh, then there was one bathroom per floor. I just had a senior moment. What the hell was I talking about? I was talking about 7th Street, but... Just talking about that time around when oh, okay. Pat was remember, working for you and, and you tattooed Janice and, and just those... Well, I, how how know, that felt. So all through that hippie era, I mean, I was out and around going to, you know, I was had ends at Bill Graham's because I tattooed a lot of musicians and stuff, and yeah, I knew that the, the upper echelon that worked <laughs> in the Bill Graham Productions. But um, tattooing has always kind of put you in those circles, oh, right, to get you in that kind of yeah, backdoor feel, right? It did. It did. It did. Bill Graham used to say that. The, the the number one sport backstage with the musicians and everything else was showing off uh, my tattoos because <laughs> I was the only I was the only tattoo artist in San Francisco for twenty some years, but my shield was was San Francisco had a a twenty one age limit, and you take and the state law is eighteen. So if somebody come in and thought about opening a tattoo shop, I mean, they, first of all, they had to go get the health regulations, right? So they would get them, and bingo, right on top side was age limit, 21. So, oh, bingo, the way they'd go. Because that knocks a lot of your clientele out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, and then when you come up the stairs in my tattoo shop, I turned around and had it blown up, uh, the state law that says that it's illegal to tattoo or offer to tattoo anybody under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. So when you come in the door of my tattoo shop, you had to very off to the left to go into the main room, but there was a, well, I don't know what it was, but it was sort of like you, you continued through the door, it was sort of more of the hallway for just, three foot, oh, maybe six foot. But anyhow, there was a column there. And so that was on the column. So when you come to the door, turn to the left to go into the main shop, you had to read that sign. Mm -hmm. And it was big enough that, you, you know, you'd have to have a C&I dog to miss it. And um, so it was funny through the years that everybody that came up there, the health inspector, the San Francisco Police Department, the undercover cops, whoever <laughs> come up there read that sign that said right. it was a California state law. So I had everybody programmed. Mm -hmm. Except the people that went and got the health department regulations and seen that it was 21. <laughs> I mean, health inspectors thought it was 18. It was, it was wild. Um, so in a city ordinance cannot supersede a state law. 
-hmm. And a state law cannot supersede the federal law. You know, California got uh, marijuana legalized or, you know, medical marijuana. It's still against the law to... um, for that, did, they did got you find houses in Nevada, but against the federal law, whorehouses are forbidden. Were you? Were you? Did you know that you were? What was the intention behind doing that? Like, what was the? Did you? Was that intentional that you strategized? Hey, I'm going to make sure that people know this, or what was? What was your purpose for kind of well, taking that stand? Pretty. Pretty staunchly. I, I didn't know that it, the long-term effects it was going to have, but I—I I don't know. I had it blown up and put it up there to yeah. cover my ass in a way. Yeah. Because if something happened and I got popped, and it was twenty-one, because it was still viewed as very, very suspect. Oh, uh, when I, but there was a lady named Miss Kavanaugh, who was charged the health department. Not charge the health department, excuse me. She was in charge of the license bureau. Very tough lady and did not like tattoos. And didn't like tattoo artists. And for years and years and years, I, I had the first tattoo studio that was in a storefront or in a private place, not an arcade. And um, so I went in there and... Um, if you ever have to do any business with a governmental organization, you go in at about a quarter to 12 because you're going to be running across, I'm going to say a lackey, but that's an unkind word, but a low person on a totem pole. Uh-huh. And they're a lot easier to deal with than the higher echelon. But the higher echelon, and back in the good old days, went out for a three-martini lunch and everything. They don't <laughs> do that no more. But um, so anyhow, I was up dealing, and this is before I'd learned about the quarter to 12 theory. Um, I went up there and was talking to Miss Cavanaugh, and she was like giving me the. So then she told me, she said, You're the first tattoo artist I ever met that had clean fingernails. And I never met a stranger, and I'm sort of easygoing and, you know, jovial. And uh, so I got along with her, and I got along fine. But um, then uh, with that quarter to 12 business, I travel all the time, and damn jury duty. And wherever you have your register to vote or your driver's license, your address, and it isn't in San Francisco, it's in Ukiah. So I would get notices to go for jury duty. And I travel all the time. So it's tough. And some of these shows I do, I get paid so much money to do. If I don't show up, it's in the contract, I got to pay them that much money. (laughs) Right, right. Bingo. So performance contracts. So... I'm not going to be coughing up some money. So I, and my friend of mine was a district attorney in Ukiah, and I asked him about it. And that jury duty, boy, they are the toughest department <laughs> in, the, in the, the county system. You've probably been dealing with that shit since, since way back. Yeah, I uh, know. But, boy, they're the toughest because 
it's at your constitutional right, and you got to live up to it. Right. <laughs> you know. So anyhow, I'm not going to the jury duty. Skip it out because Norm Bowman, who was the DA, he said I can't do a thing for you. Said, <laughs> I I don't have nothing to do. You know, down there, they're toughies. So I wrote down all of the places I had been that year, and then I wrote down all the places I was going to be that year. And so I went in at a quarter to 12. <laughs> and the lady that was in there, I explained to her that this is the places I've been and about the performance contracts. And this is the places I'm going to be. And I had got a postcard to mail that had a red border on it. And it was saying that shirking your, and this is not what it said exactly, but it <laughs> meant if shirking your jury duty is punishable by a large fine or incarceration. So I got the postcard. I got the list, and I explained it to her very nicely. And she said, are you over 72? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then she nicely said, well, why don't I just take you off of jury duty? 72 is a cutoff. There you go. Yep. So uh, she just made a notation <laughs> on that postcard, threw it in the box up there, <laughs> and about a week later I receive another postcard telling me that I am relieved from jury duty forever. And it doesn't <laughs> say that exactly, but that's what it meant. So I framed the SOB, yep. <laughs> and it hangs by my front door with a few other important items <laughs> amazing amazing yeah. what what was it like tattooing i want to talk about the time when you did find yourself on the cover of rolling stone well let's talk about that what was it like first i want to know what it's like tattooing janice joplin i mean at that time was she as big as what people seem to put I her, her up i knew her the last year of her life was all mm -hmm. um well, I mean, she was a, she was as big as she ever was that right. last year. Um, it, it it's funny because, like I was saying, I was down there working. Oh, at the top of the stairs in this hallway, uh -huh. it was when the hippie period was going, and they was all carrying backpacks. <laughs> that you'd go out in that hall, and you almost had to snake your way through backpacks because there were so many people in the shop. It was in the museum, because the museum was on the same level. And um, I was always joking, God damn, I got to get a backpack girl. Or a, a back, no, wait a minute, a backpack check girl. <laughs> like they check your coat, coat in a yeah. nightclub. Uh -huh. Well, I was going to have to do that, you know, because uh, whew, it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and talking about age limit, I always was a stickler on checking people's ID cards and stuff. Yeah. But it's funny how people, either bullshitters become, get tattooed, or after you get a tattoo or you become a bullshitter. I don't <laughs> right. know which it is, but they, they, they're correlated. <laughs> because I've... Was uh, Janice a bullshitter right away, or did she become one after? You know, I, she was out there. 
Was she? Yeah. You tattooed a little bracelet on her, right? A bracelet uh, and a little heart on her breast. Yeah. And, and that and that rocked the world. Well, she did more for tattooing than any one human being. Mm-hmm. And um, she would get up in, front of, in concerts and point to her tattoo and say, anybody that gets tattooed likes to fuck a lot. <laughs> Well, Madison Avenue could not write better copy than that. Uh-huh. I mean, there's some retardo sitting out there in the audience saying, man, I like to fuck a lot. I need a tattoo. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, it was just, so she did more for it. Did you but, know that when you were tattooing her, how big it was that you were tattooing her? No. She um, was just a nice girl that sang. And, and, it, and was, it was just fortunate because I was, like I was down there and had my head buried. I had fallen into the adult trap. I had a, I had a mortgage on a house. I had a wife. I yeah. had two kids. Cha cha cha. Car payment. Um, the adult trap. Yeah. And uh, hear hear that, folks. There <laughs> is a trap out there. When you spout pubic hair, you'll fall into it if you're not careful. Um, so it was the last year of her life, and it. But what had happened, well, about tattooing and its popularity, it's, it's sort of, you ask me how to, what, ask me how to, what time it is, and I have to tell you how to build a clock. Um, tattooing was a, an obscure, clandestine art form. And being a historian, the only time that you can get any tattoo information or anything or photographs is generally when it was in the background. Like, I got a picture of a tattoo shop down in Market Street. It's there, an arcade, and it had right. arcade and everything, and the word tattoo. But it was taken of a parade going up Market Street. And it wasn't the gay parade. It yeah. was like a horse parade. <laughs> was there a photographer when Janice got tattooed there, or did you even no, think about doing that? Uh, there was a couple pictures taken of her tattoos, and one of them is on the, the inside cover of an album, a double album, uh-huh. of Pearl. Shows her one on her breast yeah. and the one. And she developed by uh, a, a idea of uh, astrological signs and how they get tattooed. And uh, Scorpios, uh, I don't pay no attention to anything that guys do or anything dealing with guys. I like women. <laughs> and... So Scorpio women are a special sign because, uh, and they they like to be the sort of the center of attention, and so they like to get tattooed because when you're getting tattooed, well, Spider Web said that the only time that you know that you're alive is when you're getting tattooed. Uh, <laughs> well, they got your attention for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, then, um, so. She come in and she went, she had just got back from South America, mm-hmm. and it's just lucky that I'd seen her on the news, uh, because uh, she just got back from South America and she got this bracelet so that she liked, but she wore a whole armful, about ten pounds or something. <laughs> she wore the bolos, so they had uh, done a, an article about me in the the San Jose. Mercury, in that Rhoda Gavir section or the Sunday Supplement. I was on the cover of it and 
inside real nice organ. One of the first big color articles I had. Were, were you soliciting these articles or were people reaching out to you for them? No, they came. It just they came happened. flocking to you. And when the ball got rolling, it was like the stairway to heaven. Because <laughs> one bounced baseball into another one. Because, uh-huh. you know, when you have a publication or something, you got pages to fill. And you got to have interesting content. Mm-hmm. And I learned that when I put out the Tattoo Historian, which was a... Um, Five and a half by, uh, hmm, I forget what the size of it was now. But anyhow, with it, you took a, a sheet of typewriter paper, not legal paper, but typewriter, and then you folded it. So it's one way is um, eight and a half inches, and the other way is uh, the 11, so that's mm-hmm. five and a half. So anyhow, the... Um, um, so when she got back from South America, that had just come out. Because when I went over to her house about a week later or something, that article was pinned up on her <laughs> in her kitchen. Because her and I become sort of fast, fast friends, you know. A week later, after you tattooed Janice Joplin, she, you went to her house and you guys were buddies. Yeah, we were, we were buddies that, that day. Right. You know, and that's the nice thing about never meeting a stranger. And yeah. she was outgoing, too. Uh-huh. She only had one fault in a way, and that was she liked entourages. She liked mm. people around. Hmm. And um, and I was raised as an only child, and we don't like to have people around. So she always wanted to... And I lived um, in Sleepy Hollow in Marin County, and she lived in uh, Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And so I always went to her little town on the way to the city. And I had a red, white, and blue Austin Cooper. And not the mini that they make BMW. These were the little classic minis. Because <laughs> this is back 1971. And she called me up and say, you went Pat, you went through Fairfax today and did stop by and see me. So her and I were, you know, <laughs> she was a nice She's guy. giving you hell. Huh? She's giving you shit. For not stopping yeah, by and not seeing her. By, but God, you go to that house and she had to, um, a whole bunch of people around. And then I tattooed over there a few times at parties. Mm-hmm. And um, when did that become weird? Because that's, I mean, you would tattoo at a party. You just go and tattoo at a, I mean, it seems like people would say, oh, you can't tattoo out of your house or you can't tattoo. That whole idea well, they, of. They hadn't even been born yet. <laughs> that idea hadn't been <laughs> fucking born yet. Well, yeah. When did yeah, that well become? That, you know, I'm I, I'm not for you know like uh, kitchen scratchers and things, and those were developed uh, since this popularity happened, mm-hmm. and the mystique went out of tattooing, and there was no tattoo magazines back in 1971 right. when this was going on, and there was no tattoo conventions going on. There was no um, internet. <laughs> right. And I'm not religious. I've got a religious bone in my body, and I think all religions are full of prunes. <laughs> you know, believing in the boogaboo behind the clouds that's running the show. What a bunch of horseshit. And so anyhow, and I'm only just dealing that on an intellectual point because I've read right. and read about it and been curious about it. 
Um, who wouldn't be? Mm-hmm. But, um, and the senior moment. What was the high point in San Francisco? Tattooing here, as many years as you've been here, what was, when you look back on it, um, I would say about uh, 68, 69 until uh, I sort of got out of it in probably in about 78 or something. Uh-huh. And not out of it, but I actively quit tattooing. Sure. And But always through the years, if um, I had my studio properly staffed, uh-huh. And a good manager. I was off traveling around the world collecting for the Tattoo Art Museum <laughs> or going to Samoa getting tattooed. Sure. Or doing something like that. Uh-huh. You know, because that's, uh, I've got tattooed on my stomach. I designed my own family crest and it has a, a rooster and it has a feather. <clears throat> and I finally run around and I had to go to a Catholic university to get some Latin teacher to write this out. <laughs> And it says Galena Hodier Plume Crass with a rooster and with a feather. And it translates into English, chicken today, feathers tomorrow. So I've modified that philosophy into success is a trip, not the destination. So um, chicken today, but they're both correlated, you know? Yeah. Um, You've been about the uh adventure we talked about it a little bit earlier today you know there's a article coming out in um an airline magazine about you american airline magazine and you let me read it and it said that uh uh, it downplayed you the idea of you as an adventurer and i beg to differ that i think you are and have been an adventurer from the beginning what do you think about that and um you know talk about that high time tattooing in san francisco and when I also want to get into a little bit about when you started to see the um, Ed's influence, Ed Hardy's influence, and Sailor Jerry's influence into the industry and and what that kind of impact that had here in San Francisco as well. And on tattooing as a whole. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that it's, I don't know, 78, 79, when Mm -hmm. I started, you know, backing down, tattooing became more and more popular. Um, we have to go by what made it popular is uh, that a better grade of artists came in. Mm-hmm. And um, man, I went and bowed out because I was a flash artist. We didn't put shading in the nude girl's legs. We didn't do all the <laughs> It was like, you know, kindergarten kids in the art department, what was coming into the business. So I retired or backed down. Uh, well, I had some reputation left. <laughs> what year was that? I don't know. It was like in the late 70s. Yeah. And then plus I tattooed for a long time. Mm-hmm. And tattooing was becoming more popular. And uh, there was some tattoo artists around. And as long as I had the chairs fill, filled in my shop, I would rather have people working for me giving me 50% of what they made than me doing it all and getting a hundred percent, you know. There was a business there to sustain you, you to be able to go and do your thing. But you, you saw um, at that point when 
guys like Ed Hardy started to infuse into the industry and bring that idea of maybe larger scale work, you saw that change and, and the whole industry oh, yeah. changed. And I was get my whole career was geared on speed. <laughs> get it on. If that you was got that like twenty five singers mm-hmm. standing in line, you're not dilly dallying around. Mm-hmm. And I never liked to put a tattoo on bigger than my exposed open hand. Uh huh. The and idea of the palm sized tattoo. Exactly. The yeah. palm and fingers. Right. And heel the hand, you know? Yep. Which is six, seven inches. Get five. a good you get to get a good tall ship in there. Right. I remember one time there was a guy come in. And I came to work, and it was like 1 o'clock, and the shop had opened up at 12 o'clock. There was a whole load of people in there. And this guy, I said, can I help you? And uh, big old sailor was sat in there, and I said, what can I help you with? He said, I'll take that one over there. And he pointed over in the corner, and uh, now the, everybody picked off a flash in those days. Mm-hmm. Well, I went around every little design on the wall, and no, no, he had to have one that was about 14 inches long, a peacock that had six big red roses in it. <laughs> and I said, well, one of the guys are going to be available here, and they'll be glad to put it on you. Oh, no, no, he had to have me do it. So I tried to... So I went over, took that sheet of flesh off the wall, tore it in half, threw it in the wastepaper basket, and I said, we don't have that one anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, I a, mean, a different time back when flash was more of a, flash was it was a tool, right? It was a sales aid. Yeah. And they come in there and they say, I'll take that one. Hmm. And <clears throat> so... What is nice when, when two people come in and they pick out the same design, which mm-hmm. happens here once in a while, and you stencil them on it, and we use stencils, celluloid stencils. They were a clear plastic stencil with a scribe in them. You put a willow charcoal in there. You shave the arm, sanitize it, put a little Vaseline on there. You stuck it on there, and you had this little faint outline because all artwork's based on proportion. And... Uh, so what's really nice is when you have the same design with somebody on the floor and uh, you're going to start at the same time and you get to race. <laughs> Fun. So they called me the Frisco Flyer. And so there's, I designed myself a Frisco Flyer and it has an eagle's wing and the rear spring seat is an eagle's head. And uh, they sell for about five thousand bucks today. How how did you make it through the time when all of a sudden now Ed Hardy's introduced this idea of a private studio, a custom artwork? How did you wade through those waters? Well, why why would that bother me? It didn't have nothing to do with my life. It just fueled it, the, it fueled the shop the, then. I'm up next to the, a San Francisco landmark, the mm-hmm. Greyhound bus station. Right. I have walk-in trade. I have people that come in to get a name tattoo uh-huh. on. Um. So he didn't have. I mean, Ed wasn't any. It was a it was a positive 
anything, any influx in business was a positive to you. Well, it didn't hurt me. Right. <laughs> now, Henry Goldfield, okay, I forget which guy came to town first, but it was Henry Goldfield or was Ed Hardy mm -hmm. uh, that came to San Francisco and opened up first. Well, Henry Goldfield went down by the Embarcadero, yep. by the YMCA and opened the shop. And when the tide came in, the sewers backed up and it would make <laughs> your eyes water. Now, I was never in that shop. And then he moved up on Broadway and he was up there for 30 or yep. a long time. And that's the one that just shut down a few years ago or a year ago or something. Yeah, he shut down just in the last year or so, yep. yes. Uh, for reasons. Mm -hmm. um, there's a guy, it's open now. Somebody else opened it up again. Sure. But, uh, what happened was that you went up Broadway and then you went over the hill at Montgomery. You went down there to Sansom and then you went on to an on-ramp on the Embarcadero Freeway that took you down around the Ferry Building and out. Mm -hmm. Great ingress, egress into the city and out of the city. So there was a few thousands of people went through there by his shop every day. And so the three most, the com three components of a successful business is location, location, location. <laughs> and so then Broadway was the, all the titty shaking joints was on <laughs> Broadway. Next door to Henry's shop was a place called, slips my mind, but it was a, they had a music venue in there. Okay. So it was, it held quite a few people. Now the Loma Prieta earthquake come in 1989, uh -huh. the freeway was torn down. All these people quit going by there. Um, the God, I can't think of the name of that place, but anyhow, um, that place that had the music venue and it was popular young people music turned into a gentleman's club. Huh. And I don't think the dudes that go to a gentleman's club are the type of guys that get tattooed. <laughs> they drive Audis and Mercedeses and I don't know. I, right. I hate titty bars. I'll go to a whorehouse in a minute, but I won't go to a titty bar. I think titty bars are degrading to women. Whorehouses, they're, they're supplying you with a service. They're earning their money, but titty bars, yuck. <laughs> but that's me. Did you, did you, when you were working around that time, so you saw that things were happening with the influx of business and, um, I assume that you knew that Ed Hardy was, was doing what he was doing and kind of kept current on that stuff. And same with Greg Irons working for Henry. Um, guys like that that had Those a big... All way down the line now. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's over 50 tattoo shops, I believe, in the phone book now. Mm -hmm. You know? So the first thing that helped popularize tattooing was tattooing and never got any mass coverage so in 1960 
tattooing was made illegal in the five, six, seven, something like that, mm-hmm. boroughs in New York. And it was a TV show at the time called The Naked City. And it said there's nine million stories in the Naked City. <laughs> well, that meant that it was like nine million people there. But she's a whole, you know, it's a fucking anthill. And so they outlawed it. And it was due, they had just identified type B hepatitis. Uh-huh. And there were 17 ambulatory patients that had been tattooed during the incubation period, which is between 90 and 120 days. And so there was no health regulations or nothing. And so bureaucrats are people that are out on a sunny day in the middle of a pond that has no ripples in it. They're in a canoe and they're trying to take a nap. And if you go by and throw a big brick in that pond and you're going to cause waves, you're going to right. shake them around. So th- that they woke them up. Yeah. No I health t- regulations. Man, I talked with uh, back in probably, now I don't know if it was Dave Gibson who was my very first interview for uh, at, as a tattooer. I interviewed Dave Gibson or I inter- and I also interviewed um, uh, Clayton Patterson. And he talked about that time when New York uh, made it illegal. And before that, prior, he had the New York Tattoo Society meetings. And um, there was up to, I think he said it was, at most they had like 600 people at one of these meetings. They were monthly meetings. Guys like Guy Atchison, Eddie Deutsch, all these guys went through there. is one of the unsung heroes of New York tattooing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said that put us to people one day and he was standing there and I didn't say that to make him feel good or anything but God his eyes went you know <laughs> like because uh, he's an, an unsung hero because he kept tattooing alive and well yeah. in New York City so anyhow these bureaucrats they just outlawed tattooing and then they went to court I think there was six people tattooing in this whole area mm-hmm. a couple at Coney Island a couple down on Chatham Square so anyhow when that happened, all the news services picked it up. And it was just in every newspaper. Jesus Christ, they wore the subject. Across out. the country. But news editors and newspapers and radio stations and things, but more newspapers. The printed word was, you know, God King. then. Um, they would send a reporter out probably to dig up more dirt about a tattoo artist. And a lot of tattoo artists felt if you hit up a dark, dirty street and stayed away from the big bad man that passes the laws that puts you out of business, you're okay. <laughs> I felt the opposite. You know, if they're going to put me out of business, they're going to know who put me out of business. Mm-hmm. And I was always interested in image. I wanted my tattoo shop to look equally on the level of a doctor's office or a dentist's office or something. But still have the history and the... Um the the memorabilia around you always had the museum so you were always well, kind it was of nice to have the museum next door yeah right you were always but then not only was there a profession later. so it was professionalism and then at the point when you could showcase what you had 
created, you yeah, started my, with the museum. People used to walk in that tattoo shop and, ooh, you know. Yeah. So I remember being in there. Yeah. I remember being in this one down two stories below. Yeah. As uh, on a guest spot from um, at Ernos that that time when I when I uh, slept in the shop and I I went, made my rounds. I, d well, I you talked know it's funny to because Erno worked for me about seven years and so did Pat Martinuk. Right. The picture machine. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, and then I was always gone, and it's hard to stand in another man's shadow, especially when he's not there to make it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyhow, um, so they would send a reporter out, maybe to dig up some more dirt. Mm -hmm. And then they wound up um, finding a media-friendly tattoo artist, which was few and far between. And uh, a lot of these old guys was hands-off. Anyhow, uh, and I happened to be one of them. Then, so that was where early publicity came from. And I bought two tattoo artists' work effects after they retired or died. One died, one had a stroke and couldn't work, and got both of their scrapbooks. They didn't have nothing written about them until 1960. <laughs> Doc Forbes, I got his work effects. Uh, he had one in 1958 that was in McLean magazine, and that's like Canada's Life magazine. And it was a little blurb, and it said the police was recently asked to go down to the tattoo shop on Johnson Street and ask them to please don't tattoo anybody under the age of 18 and see cadets especially. And that's so it the, was a service call, essentially. That was yeah, it. Right. So anyhow, that was that was the first thing that Doc Forbes ever written about in <laughs> 1961, and so and he was a charismatic old character, so he got a lot of things, you know. He got a an article written that he's tattooing a crab, but but it was they, there is some, but I set up a method in Alaska for him to tattoo fish because there's a place where you can use colored dots on the back of, not the dorsal fin, but the one that's in back of it, the pectoral fin. <laughs> well, but they, it was for breeding stock and migration patterns and stuff. Who did you talk to about this? Who? Uh, who uh, about this, the tattooing the dorsal fins of fish? How, how did you get hooked up with this? I was tattooing in Alaska. <laughs> and right? a guy come wandering in there one day and come to see me especially. And I'm, I'm in an area one-fifth the size of the United States, and I'm the only tattoo artist up there. <laughs> they probably have them now, like, you know, there's more tattoo artists than bears up there now, at least skunks. <laughs> but anyhow, so um, then in 1966, a guy named Richard Speck went to Chicago and killed eight nurses. And on his arm, he had a tattoo that was a devil with born to raise hell written around it. <laughs> and man, did that make the press. So you'd be surprised of the people that came in there and wanted that ta same tattoo. <laughs> I said a little while ago that the word dumb bastard didn't get, get utilized thoroughly till the human race got here. Uh, so anyhow... Um, 
and born and raised hell is a popular tattoo design. Mm-hmm. They, I put it on many times with a set of dice and something, but I wouldn't <laughs> copy that devil. I mean, I just, you know. And then, um, like 1968 or so, women's liberation started rearing its, a chauvinist would say its ugly head, but I wouldn't because they <laughs> put me on the map. Um, so women started getting their rights and they wanted them like the black folks. They wanted them mm-hmm. right now. And I think tattooing is more suited for women than men. Men want to get a tattoo. Now I'm talking about back then. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get a tattoo that looked t- tough down at the pool hall. They also put taps on their shoes so when they walked down the street they could drag them. And at nighttime they made sparks. <laughs> um, but women curl their hair, they paint their toenails, and augment everything in between, you know? And uh, so, started tattooing women. Yeah. And then, that We're- enamored the press. I was in more panties than gynecologist. <laughs> and I'm not talking about sexually. I'm talking about, they wanted a, a tattoo, but they wanted something that wasn't blatant uh-huh. and um so anyhow it um so in and when i say i was in more panties than gynecologist was a putting bikini line. butterflies and sure. rose buds which is the, was the most popular inside of bikini lines or inside of broad lines you know how many rose buds do you think you've tattooed in your day my roast <laughs> yeah, i had the first you know roast uh was out here at bimbo's and Jack Rudy says, how many rosebuds can one guy put on? Well, I put a bunch of them on. <laughs> I had a one-dip rosebud I could put on, um, a one-dip butterfly. <laughs> and you don't put butterflies on with equal wings. You put them on flying sideways till you have one wing. And then you have one sticking out from behind. Uh, you know, Why is that? Efficiency. Well, you can freehand it on, but it's almost impossible to freehand one on that has symmetrical wings. Static with both wings out. Got it. Um, So that was. um, That's amazing. So the women's liberation. Yeah. Put a boom. So tattooing then floated along for a few years with women getting tattooed. And then I had sort of like bowed out of tattooing. By the time that they started getting blatant be, women, with be, getting full sleeves, sure. arms covered, they'd get them on the neck nowadays. I mean, well, I don't know. I was telling a guy that works for me downstairs today we was talking. No, but then, you know, you can turn around and step on your own whatever <laughs> tongue, I guess. Um, there's a Japanese I forget his name now I call him all Japanese tattoo artists start off with Hori mm-hmm. that means tattoo artist in their name so he's a young man he's, well, he's 33 years old and he tattoos in New York but I ran across him in Hawaii two weeks ago two weekends ago and then last weekend one weekend ago I ran across him in Seattle and uh, I call him Hori Kamikaze 
<laughs> and uh, he's really a likable guy. He came in a day with a girl that had tattoos that went up the side of her neck and then across her chest. And then she, I asked her how far they went down. And she showed me, and it, it's just sort of like a breast piece, but it goes up the neck. And it's like in a tribal style. And I asked her what nationality was because she had a nice body coloration, brown, mm -hmm. you know? So she could have been a lot of things, you know? Um, and um, so she said that she was Native American or part Native American. Mm -hmm. So, she, But she still had a, she didn't have to work on her tan. <laughs> I mean, if she worked on it, she'd be darker than she wanted to be. Because dark-skinned women or almond-colored women and things like that throughout the world, in Samoa, they have a healthy color. They're not like doughboy or dough girl. You know, there's an advertisement about these biscuits that you put in there. <laughs> uh, anyhow, Pillsbury dough girls, they're not that. They're not white, you know, white, white. Um, so anyhow, they... Uh, their tattoos they look walk good? Around with, when they're going out on the sun, they walk around with parasols <laughs> because being light is a status symbol. Hmm. Did her, uh, this guy's uh, friend and her tattoo, did you like her tattoos? You don't think that? Oh, it was um, handsome. It was nice. I mean, it was handsome. Yes. With that skin coloration and whoever did it did a wonderful job. The edges were crisp. The color, fields of color was in nicely, and it was uh -huh. just, uh, well, you know, when you get it, <clears throat> black ink will go in the skin, and you get the transparency, you get that sort of a sharp color. Depends uh -huh. on how light you are, how dark you are. Sure. Well, anyhow, it was, I, they were supposed to be over here this evening, but if I uh -huh. was, uh, he said he was coming over, I said you were going to be over here and everything, and... Um, but if I was running around with her, I wouldn't have been over here either. <laughs> were you, um, you know, we were talking about earlier, we were talking about this Rolling Stone cover. And I don't know any other tattooer has been on cover of Rolling Stone. Um, were you nervous when you went to that photo shoot? Or talk about getting that call from, uh, from that you told me about, Annie Leibovitz calling you about that shoot. Well, how that all came about was that, it seemed like that one article led to another, except the Rolling Stone didn't. There was a blonde-haired, attractive young lady come in. She had her probably some her hair braided on the side, and uh, she wanted to get a ring tattooed on her finger. And she wanted a hair on her middle finger. And she wanted to, and the reason was that if she, somebody didn't like her tattoo and said something about it, she could show it off by giving them the finger because <laughs> it was on her middle finger. Or if she was showing it to somebody who liked it, she could put her hand out and show it to her. Mm -hmm. And you have to realize this is about 1970, 71, something like that. So I put the ring on her finger. And then she's saying, you know, this is the age of Aquarius. And then my tattoo shop really looked like a dentist's office. Chrome rail, uh, 
Formica, stainless uh-huh. steel. Anyhow, she said you ought to loosen it up. This is the age of Aquarius. You know, it's like it's a new generation. It's like, and I said, well, what do you think I should make it look like? And she said, how about a Victorian whorehouse? So then I did start using some flocked wallpaper, uh-huh. and I did loosen it up. <laughs> and the next room were private semi-private appointments were on. I took the ceiling and painted it blue and down the walls to the picture frame molding, put white stars around, and then put red and white stripes in it. It's a red, white, and blue room. <laughs> and it's pictured in, in, like, in an article in Life magazine. In fact, Kochi, the artist that we was talking about a little while ago, that painting right there was uh-huh. in... Uh, Life magazine, because it's in the background of the picture in the red, white, and blue room. So anyhow, then she's looking around, and she said, you know, there's a story here. <laughs> um, so we went on, was talking. What well, yeah, it turned out to be, her name was Amy Hill, and she was a writer for Rolling Stone magazine. Huh. And that's how Rolling Stone came about. That simple. She come in as a customer. Then she went to an Ivy League college, New England somewhere, and her roommate through the years was named Karen Thornton. And Karen Thornton happened to be an editor in Life magazine. There was the stepping stone. You know, it's... um, it was like the stairway to heaven. That just <laughs> one article after another one right. happened, and then um, all of a sudden you're getting a call. Um, yeah, I'm trying <laughs> to think of who, and it happened with the television shows, and I'm trying to. Um, oh, I know what it was. <clears throat> so I, they did a, the personality profile on the cover of. Wall Street Journal, they did an article about me. Huh. And it was like a man that markets an improbable product. <laughs> well, Tiffany's in New York got took exception to that, and they took out a full-page ad in the next issue, or somewhere along there, in the Wall Street Journal objecting to the Wall Street Journal saying that tattooing was cool. Except <laughs> because they always stood for good taste. Oh, shit. Well, the next call I get after that is from the Johnny Carson show. I was just thinking, did you ever think you were going to go on Carson? Hell no, I never thought, you know, anything. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm a high school dropout from Ukiah, California. Right. So it was all, a, it's, it's still all a surprise to right. me. Right. Carson's calling. Yeah. You know, they had he had the Today Show, then it was the Tonight Show, mm-hmm. and I forget that fellow's name, but he was a real nice guy. Johnny Carson is plain as dirt, just a nice guy. You never realize who people are by media, right? You know, I, I was on one guy's TV show, and I always thought he was the greatest thing since Cheese Dip. <clears throat> He never spoke to me once off camera. 
a guy that uh, I was on a, a show, this same guy's show one night in Hollywood, Steve Allen. And, you know, he, always, he did a hell of a good show and everything else. And, and I was on a good show, but he never spoke one word to me off camera. <laughs> it was funny. And Aunt George Plimpton was one of the guests. Hmm. Vicki Rooney was another guest. And Edie Adams was another guest. So the four of us. So when you walk in a studio, they generally have a butcher board there. So this was an easel, and it had the Steve Allen show, cha-cha-cha. And then the guests going down there. So T, that's sort of down the list, you know? <laughs> so we're in makeup, and they don't put makeup on guys, but they go in and they wipe the grease off your forehead, and, you know, right? they do a, use a little powder or something, but... Um, Mickey Mooney come running in the makeup room and he grabbed my hand and shook it and he said, Lyle Tuttle, I've always wanted to meet you. He probably had never heard my goddamn name until he walked in that studio that night and read it as one of the guests. But he was that type of guy. I mean, he was just out there. So he did a so he was around here in the tattoo shop and everything because um, they had, um, he did a movie and they filmed it up at San Quentin. Huh. So it took a week or so or something like that. So he was in and around Frisco for a while, you know? Yeah. Would come and hang out at the shop. Yeah. That's awesome. But he was just, <laughs> oh, I know what happened on that show. George Plimpton has got his nose near. But he's an Ivy Leaguer, and he writes for Atlantic Magazine and, you know, all that stuff. He's a upper crust. Um, so Vicky Rooney went in there, and he sort of grabbed the script from the announcer, and automatically he become the, the announcer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we're sitting there, and George Plimpton had already been interviewed, and he was gone. Uh, I think Edie Adams was gone. Vicki Rooney and I were going to get uh, interviewed next. And because um, it was on a break and it was a live show. <clears throat> so I looked over these papers and my name isn't mentioned. Huh. Well, this happened a little bit before that because all four guests was going to be announced. So anyhow, I looked over there and my name is not mentioned. So I said... He's sitting next to me. I said, my name isn't mentioned. So when they come back in the air, he says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we have our special guests of Lyle Tuttle, <laughs> George Plimpton, <laughs> down the line. So he put my name on top. Uh, <laughs> wow. What a character. That's you know, amazing. So, that was, so those TV shows were all fun. Yeah. You know, um, for somebody who's ever in New York, was uh, they called me up and I went back and did What's My Line. And it was about 68, I think. And then I got back home and Goodson and Todman were the name of the producers of that show. They were on the, uh, the Avenues of America, 6th Avenue in New York. Their offices are in the same place. Um, so I get home after doing what's my line no yeah what's my line 
And a week later, I get a call. They want me to come back <laughs> and do to tell the truth. Why the hell didn't they have me there do both of them? I mean, I'm just talking about economics. <laughs> right. You know? So then I was on the, then they, 20 years later, I was on the, to tell the truth again. Yeah. But they had changed the, the format of it. You think that we're going to see another tattooer grace the cover of Rolling Stone or another tattooer be on a, a Jimmy Kimmel or something like that? You know, I'm just a product of timing. Yeah. I was the right guy at the right place at the right time in everybody's favorite city. <laughs> it was a formula that couldn't miss. I didn't get there by my great artistic talents whatsoever. There's some people out there, um, the artwork they do. Yeah. I met a guy, I'd heard his name a couple times and hadn't paid too much attention to it. Met him up in Seattle last weekend. He's a, a painter, an oil painter. I didn't really actually, well, I've seen some of his tattooing. You know, I, um, I don't, people, young artists come up and want to show me their portfolio. Sure. And I've lived in looking at tattoos my <laughs> whole life, it seems like. Um, they want to know, I look, I saw, look at a couple of pages. And, oh, I'm going to mention the guy's name that was so good, that's Sean Barber. Amazing, right? Okay, so off to the, uh, so they come and show me the, um, their portfolio. So I, I say, I'll look at a couple of pages, and then I'll look at them, and then I'll say, you're good enough to make a living. And a hmm. tattoo artist only has to satisfy one person, and that's the person that you're tattooing. <laughs> that's it. It's not necessary to get in biker magazines or tattoo magazines or anything else you're there doing it for a livelihood when did you realize that when did that become apparent to you Am uh, amongst all the covers and the parties and the tv shows and this and that when did you realize it was about just I that present moment to that conclusion of that saying and, and mouthed it just in the last little bit Mm -hmm. which means the last year or so or yeah you know but it's true i just never had thought about it before right you know you know things that are evident but then until you put it in words then you don't really absorb it mm -hmm. until you can communicate it to other people yeah you know it's um um so tattooing i don't think it'll ever happen to anybody because tattooing now is old hat they was having across the street from my tattoo shop the demonstrations against the atomic bombs that they were setting off down in French Polynesia, mm -hmm. the French. So there was some writer that had written a couple stories about me. He was in South America or something covering a revolution or some damn thing, and he calls me on the phone. He says, hey, Lyle, this is so-and-so. He said, I want to know if there's anything new happening in the tattoo business. He said, I don't want to hear about all the women you're tattooing. So that sort of put it out there. He wanted to know if there's anything new and exciting happening. You know, he didn't want to hear about all the tattoo, you know, women I tattooed. 
<laughs> but at one time that was a hot subject. Sure. So things change. Yeah. So <clears throat> tattooing, like I was saying, that the people that's living today or people, that, that, you know, young people, mm -hmm. they don't have a, God, I wouldn't want to be a young person. <laughs> I'm 83 years old and I'm ready to check out any time. Yeah. Well, we talked about I just that. I to sneak up on me. Yeah. But, you know. You know, it's it's what I, I want to talk about some, uh, you know, about that, about the time when you also started seeing seeing because we talked about it before seeing Jerry's work coming through here, too. And you said, you, you know, you said it on the Who's first uh, Sailor Jerry. Okay. And you said that, uh, you know, you weren't really impressed with his day to day work that was coming were coming through. And I want to know what you think that his legacy in this industry is and what his impact was in this industry. Well, he hated me with the purple passion. <laughs> he did. But he was over in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. you, don't, uh, you, don't, you, you don't get much input on a small island. Um, he was doing some, some fairly nice big work for the right. day. Mm -hmm. um, his day-to-day, because -day, we, uh, I said, Explain it as we we exchange sailors, right? Um, we don't. There, there's not even any navy ships hardly anymore. <laughs> right. You know, this place used to be crowded. And that was yeah. one thing with Henry Goldfield. After the freeway was torn down, and the navy had a presence here, and he was a an ex canoe club member, been in the navy. I was a marine, so we called the canoe club. <laughs> And um, so they uh, wound up that uh, the sailors disappeared. The rock and roll place went next door to a gentleman's club, and the freeway was closed. He was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh -huh. So um, Sailor Jerry started making his impact because he said that I will never – give an interview so he was one of the guys that wanted to hide up the dark dirty street. He, he was in Chinatown he wasn't a dark dirty street but he was an isolationist but he had a he was a real right winger he did have a radio show <laughs> right and uh, did you hear that did you ever listen I to never that heard it. Nope. never heard uh, it never heard it never mentioned it never uh, right. met the man and uh, then, um, so where a guy named Mike Malone went over and bought from the widow his complete work effects, and he turned around and he sold the rights to Sailor Jerry's name. Well, he sold a lot of his splash and stuff, and then had it copied and everything else. Mike Malone called him. Also had a handle of a Rolo. Uh, and he was a good artist himself. And um, so he uh, wound up selling Sailor Jerry's name to that rum company. But, well, there's no hallowed ground in this world, I guess. <laughs> uh, Sailor Jerry was a teetotaler, meaning he didn't drink. 
I think he drank it one time, and maybe he figured out he was a bad drunk or something, but he did not drink. Mm -hmm. And here they got this savior, Jerry Rome, out now. You think he'd be rolling over in his grave right now? Boy, he is rolled over. (laughs) He's probably at the center of the earth now. Um, Disliking me, but of all the things that happened to me, it wasn't happening to anything else. I was like on the West Coast, and I was sort of the media darling, right? Spiderweb was in New York City, mm-hmm. and t- tattooing was illegal in New York City, and Spiderweb was a charismatic guy. So he would, he got some thunder on him. So it was Lyle Tell in San Francisco, Spiderweb in New York. That was the only media. That's all they knew. And... Um, so I would have probably hated me if I hadn't been the <laughs> Right. So I understand Sailor Jerry's approach. Sure. Um, so Kate what? Hillenbrand was married to mm-hmm. Mike Malone. Right. Shanghai Kate. That's who introduced me to you the first yeah. time. And Shanghai Kate's never been to China. <laughs> She's never been Shanghai either. Been waylaid a couple times, but <laughs> and I mean, I've said that to Kate, so I'm not sure. saying anything out of school. Yeah, you don't say anything about anybody unless you'd say it to their face yeah. or have said it to their face. Kate's a good friend of mine, and I've had her on my podcast twice. We've had two wonderful conversations. Okay. The well, second wonderful. of which uh, got pretty heavy. We talked about 9/11, and you know, she had an interesting story where. Months and months after 9-11, an FBI agent came to her and asked her if it was her name, and she said, yeah, and he crossed her off a deceased list, and he broke down in tears, and it got heavy, man. It was, like, pretty crazy. She was was put on a deceased. Somehow her name got on a a deceased list from 9-11, and this guy, FBI agent, who had been tasked with this job of going and trying to – that these this list comes across as one woman who's not passed and breaks down about it because he's dealing with all these people that are, you know, uh, dead. And yeah, man, Kate and I have had some good well, talks. I'm close to where the, the right happened. Absolutely, she was right there in the mix of it and walked to work for a long time. Was managing that shop and and really was impacted by it, but. Um, yeah, she, she, her, I met in San Francisco right here in town and, and, uh, gave her a ride up to your house and, and, uh, that's where we first met. And, um, but yeah, really you gave her a ride up there. Yeah. I gave her a ride up there and, uh, you remember okay. the first thing you asked me, do you remember the uh, first thing? You, so we get introduced to each other. First thing you asked me, he goes, you want a little bit of China white heroin? <laughs> that was the first thing out of your mouth. Oh, well, that was, and, you know, that's a joke. Absolutely. And this is what I found about you, Lyle, is there's you have all these great one liners. And it is about the thing that you've said about yourself a few times is that nobody's a stranger. That was what it is. You broke the ice immediately with this outlandish, you know, statement. And yeah. all of a sudden we're friends and we're talking and we're in the backyard and, and we're clear, walking. It clears the clears playing it. field. Clears the China playing White. field. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got, I got gin, tequila, <laughs> grapefruit juice, and tonic, and then some good China White. 
There you go. I I read it in a magazine or no, I didn't. I don't know if I read it or saw it in a movie or where I heard it. But they always said, you know, keep a pack of cigarettes with you at all times because you never know. You know, you might run across the smoker. Yeah, you might need to. You might need to give that cigarette back. I got a couple packs of cigarettes. (laughs) I haven't got any here, but up at um, at my home in Ukiah, there's a somebody and left a couple packs of cigarettes. And so I've kept them, but I know one of them's about eight years old, ten years old, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So if somebody you know wants to blow a fag, which they say <laughs> over in uh, in Europe, right? Let's go out and blow a fag, mate. Well, you've been all around this world. You told me last time we sat around this table. You told me a story about you and Jack Rudy and Brian Everett being in Russia, getting getting uh, you know. Absconded by uh, a certain el- criminal element. Yeah. And, man, you have seen some wild times. Talk yeah. oh, about yeah. that. Jack Rudy. <laughs> um, well, Brian Everett was over there. Um, Jack Rudy was over there. Um, and we got to go to Hanky Panky's convention in Amsterdam because it was the weekend before, so we just sort of dropped in. So, <laughs> Dad, when you, well, when you go to Russia then, I don't know about now, you're in a bus from the airport, and they take you to the passport office, and they take your passport away from you. <laughs> and they give you an ID card. And you have to use that quite often. Like to get into the hotel, you have to use it. When you go up to your floor, you go into a, there's a reception desk there. There's a, after you turn your ID card in and they give you a key to your room. (laughs) They always ask you that, do you want a nice girl? So I would always sort of say, now, now I want to get this straight. Now, Am I paying for this girl? Uh, well, well, yes. And I said, well, if I'm paying for one, I don't want a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, <laughs> that's either here or there. But so then they had all of us sort of tattoo people in this sort of one long hallway. And so we leave the doors open and we're sort of. And uh, but Jack was over there and he had his door closed. And, uh, no, I guess he had his, I don't know, had his door open, had his door closed. But these uh, marauding or roving prostitutes was in the halls in the hotel when they're going around. And uh, so they'd go by each door and they'd knock on it. And they would say, seeks, seeks. (laughs) So they'd knock on Jack's door. Seeks, seeks, and he jumped up, run to the door. And he's, he's not grouchy, but he's got, and he grabs her by the arm and he points across the hall. He said, "This is seven sixes across the hall," <laughs> but they're saying sex. <laughs> I did the greatest maneuver in the world. I was figuring out what could I take over there as gifts or something. So, you know, chocolate bars went over good after World War II in Europe. So I took six pairs of hose with me, pantyhose, six, just six pairs. 
Why did those go over good? In Russia. In Russia. You were pre-thinking what you, you, gifts that you needed to bring over there that they might like. Something. And then, have you ever heard of pogs? Nope. Pogs. <clears throat> there was some um, lawnsmen or some Jewish folks, I think, guys sitting around. You know, the guys that started the Hollywood, they were junk men from New York. And they got into the movie industry. Anyhow, so they use their brain about business and things. So when milk stopped being capped and put in bottles, you had all this capping equipment. So pogs are cardboard the size of milk things. You've never heard of a pog. They was in for a while. 30 seconds or so, maybe. But, <laughs> and then you had a metal pog. Okay. And then they had skulls on them. They had all kind of pictures. Right. But, but most of it was skulls or dragons or something like that. And you took this metal pog the size of a Top of milk a milk cap, cap, yeah. And you threw the others out. It was like sort of playing marbles. Then you would take and throw your metal pog at the cardboard that's on the ground and if you flipped it over it was yours it was <laughs> like jacks or something sure so i took a whole bunch of those over those went real good and then i autographed the back of the metal ones and um i think maybe i only took metal ones but yeah, i went and autographed the back of them then put moscow and i forget even forget what year it was <laughs> so that was um a great experience right you guys, uh, you've always you've always been into those little trinkets. Those little, I mean, you've given me in the time that I've known you for the last, you know, handful of years, half a decade or whatever it was um, since we well, I don't know when I first squish, I guess it was 90. Pennies? No shit. We uh, yes. Yeah, squish pennies. That's what I'm talking about. You've given me two of them and I looked at them the other day. I keep them in my wallet. Well, I never haven't given you one that's rolled on a nickel. Oh, yeah, shit. Look at that. I got a nickel. That's good <laughs> shit right there. You've well, always been for, into I this stuff. You know what I want to do? What I want to do. Know where everybody knows where my card is. Mm -hmm. You know? You, you know what I want to do? This gave me an idea when you gave me this. So I was a cop for like seven years. And I want to do a little uh, uh, handcuff key. Like you're, a squished. You were a cop. I was a cop for seven yeah. years. Um, all the time I've been tattooing, but this gave me the idea of doing a little card, right? With my name and info on it, but it would, and it looks like a squish penny or a squish nickel, but it has a little handcuff key top and a handcuff key bottom. Right. You know, I carry a handcuff key on my, uh, keychain with me. You know, why not? They, they, I dropped down girls fronts or what's fun. They keep it warm for me. <laughs> so I, in Seattle this last weekend, I, uh, um, these two gals, I give them a coin, and one of them, I said, she's, I'm going to keep it warm. It's just sort of an automatic response. Uh -huh. I'm going to keep it warm, and bingo, stuck it in there. And the other one said, I'm going to keep it warm in my panties. And I said, <laughs> well, why don't you just stick me in there and keep me warm, you know? 83 and still vying for those oh, california my, dimes my, up in seattle yeah but my bark is a lot worse than my bike <laughs> <laughs> shit but you're man. always on automatic pilot sure 
Absolutely. You know what color Viagra's are on the inside, don't you? What? Oh, you have to use a whole one, huh? <laughs> uh, I love it, Lyle. That's, That's some good, good shit. Yeah. yeah. You've probably heard a thousand and one I jokes. Can, I know thousands of jokes. In fact, people say you ought to write a joke book. Well, to write is not to live because you're reliving. Mm -hmm. Unless, I guess, if you're writing fiction or something. Ed Hardy keeps saying, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. Well, the stuff that I'm real proud of, I don't really care about the great unwashed out there knowing about. <laughs> and, and then, or they'd say, oh, he's a bullshit artist. Or, who knows. Um, but uh, there was a, it was Robin Williams' first movie, and it was a, a movie called Can I Do It Until I Need Glasses? <laughs> Well, what it was was a whole movie that was made up, acted out, dirty jokes, acted out. <laughs> and so then I, uh, there's a joke I particularly like, and I was going to, wanted to do something like that. And, um, but I, I want, a, I want a, a movie in a can someday. I always wanted to do a porno with lookalikes. <laughs> We hire lookalikes and, and and then team up odd couples, you know. But anyhow, have, have you ever been starstruck? Sure. Who? Well, when you meet any stars, you're sort of starstruck. And I had that tattoo shop down on eighty four eighteen Sunset Boulevard. Uh huh. You never knew in Hollywood. You never know who's walking through the door. Who was? Who was walking through the door that you saw and you were like, oh shit. I get the, the one that walked through the door was in San Francisco. And, uh, well, you know, like Flip Wilson come in down there and had a M13 tattooed on his arm. M is for marijuana. And 13 is a, M is the 13th letter in the alphabet. <laughs> and uh, names that, that aren't even viable today, but uh, like Bonnie Bramlett. And she, Bonnie Bramlett, it was Bonnie and Delaney, mm -hmm. which was um, a big singing group. Right. Sha Na Na was a band at one time, a big band. Yeah. And they'd, uh, they, well, the Continental Hyatt House was right across the street. So a lot of people would come in there. And then there's a lot of people that came in and got tattooed that <coughs> never told you who they were. Right. You know, like a woman come in. In fact, it was here in this building, so that was uh, after 89. Um, she said, I'm opening up a restaurant in San Diego, and I want you to uh, tell me about tattooing my husband. And she'd introduced herself as Mrs. Croce. So then about tattooing her husband, and then the name was to, and I said, you're not talking about Jim Croce, are you? And she said, yes. And I said, I never tattooed him. And she said, yes, you did. <laughs> and then she broke this manila envelope out and threw a bunch of stuff out. And so I, I had, I always used to load people up with, with a business card. <laughs> and, I used, and I used folded business cards. Yeah, I have one. With my picture in it. Because it wasn't an ego flex. It was the idea that they opened that sub up 
Now they would carry it in their wallet, and if they took it out in a bar and said, look at this dumb shit, <laughs> with all them tattoos, they would still, it was exposure. Right. And uh, so I don't know, I'd give him two or three things. And then she said a couple of things that I had said that were sort of <laughs> unique to my conversation. Sure. So Jim Croce come in and got tattooed and never told me he was Jim Croce. Sure. Well, I would have loved to met Jim Croce because mm-hmm. what a wordsmith he was. <laughs> right. You know, and then I got to meet another great wordsmith, and that was Hoyt Axton. But Hoyt would bring people in down and get get girls to get tattooed. And then he would always tell the story that, you know, my um, my my pappy told me never get tattooed, Hoyt, <laughs> because you're not too smart. And you're going to be on the run one of these days. And the cops can catch you with a tattoo. That was his story. And you know songs that he wrote, Hoyt Axton? He wrote, wrote Joy to the World that Three Dog Night did. Never been to Spain. Then an interesting thing is that his mother wrote Heartbreak Hotel that Elvis put into the stratosphere. Wow. You know, so there was... But a lot of people would come in and they'd hand you their latest album. Huh. And then Utah Phillips, you've ever heard of him? Mm Mm-mm. He, he sang railroad songs and was big on the, I went, well, big on the, probably the railroad circuit. Right. But, but, <laughs> he, but he also had following in, you know, smaller venues. He wasn't right. doing like the Rolling Stones was doing. Right. When did, when did you, when did you realize the power of exposure? Was that something you learned, uh, I mean, you had right away when you first started or? No. I just, it's a stairway to heaven. I mean, I, I still don't really, you know, understand it. And it's something that just happens so often, like this American in-flight magazine. Right. And it was funny because um, <clears throat> when I went to Antarctica and tattooed down there, which was a, year ago last january first man to tattoo on all i won't say that i don't know i'm not possibly let's call it allegedly probably let's say probably probably possibly probably but then uh, i met um uh somebody i guess it was in hawaii but here was here recently or a show that i've been to recently Uh that uh, i guess the guy didn't tattoo but his wife tattooed and Mm. He said that she'd tattooed in Antarctica, and they'd heard about it. They wanted to tell me about it. Huh. That she'd tattooed in Antarctica, but she had bought a, a starter kit <laughs> uh, from, uh, you buy them from Hong Kong and places. Whatever. And uh, a starter kit, and she was working, well, they had jobs that wasn't. In she was the, not a tattooer, though? No. But she <laughs> had got a starter kit and they was down there for a year and so she just tattooed she got into it so holy shit and so we talked there for a few minutes about it but my travel assistant whose name was anna felicity friedman and she's a college professor in uh, chicago she's an interdisciplinary scholar 
you you know what here's let me let me bring this up real quick you've always brought up professionals and the things and the projects and the stuff that you come up and talk to me about it's always a feasibility study it's always high-end professional stuff so it's it's amazing to me that um people don't catch on to this stuff that to bring such a high end a high level of professionalism to what you're doing well i you know i think education is a wonderful thing i wish i had some <laughs> so you're you're talking to experts on shit you don't know. You just need to know that well, you need I'm, to get the expert. Self-educated, but there was never a teacher when I was going to school that captured my imagination. I've been told, hmm. and that's an important thing for a teacher, because every person that's really excelled in education and getting some um, has had a teacher capture their imagination. Yeah. So anyway, what was I talking about? Anna Felicity Friedman. I mean, that's... Yes. Oh, so she gave me her card one time when I originally met her. And she's an interdisciplinary scholar. Got it. So I asked her if she was a dominatrix. <laughs> Does that sound like a dominatrix? An interdisciplinary scholar. Well, anyhow, I had somebody that sicked on the, the thing of... Fighting about going about going to Antarctica, and this person had goofed off and hadn't done it, and then he let the beans out of the bag or whatever it is, and told her. And so her and I was in St. Louis, and we went out and had dinner. You know, because an interesting woman, and she she's on the internet ad infinitum because. Um, with tattoo history and things. And uh, so they, anyhow, it ticked me off because if you got an idea and a halfway original idea and the cat gets out of the bag, it's gone. Mm -hmm. No way to get it back. Right. So anyhow, she said, I can make it happen. So there's no towns in Antarctica. There's no hotels in Antarctica. The only way you can go to Antarctica is to be invited to Antarctica. And that has to be by a scientific station. So she found out that, that information. Now you can go down on a cruise ship and they will take you a, ashore on a little boat and um, you get to walk on ice or rock, whatever. Right. Because that's all there is down there. And, uh, but to set up, do a tattoo really quickly, you know, that would be a... It'd be hand-poked. Right. So I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to do it in a situation. <clears throat> so then she got back to me and she said, uh, you, you, have, you have to be invited by a scientific station. Okay, so, and then she sort of read off... The Russians have them, Chinese have them, the Australians have them. Uh, so I thought quickly, and believe it or not, the people in the higher echelons of government or whatever that I knew was in China <laughs> or Russia. And there's 
a man over there. You had contacts in China and Russia. Those were the two. Exactly. Those okay. were the people that I had met when I was over there right. at shows. And so I gave her the, the name, rank, and serial number of the people in both <laughs> places, and we were invited to both places, the Chinese scientific station and the Russian scientific Get station. Get the fuck out of here. And I chose this, the, the Russian scientific station to go to because they drink vodka. <laughs> I drink tequila. Can I ask who you had in your pocket in Russia to find get you onto well, that I, station? I won't say I had them in my pocket, but I had met them. The best-known movie, female movie director in Russia is Galina Daniela. Okay. And she owns, and her husband is a movie director also, they own Gala Record Company and Gala um, Movie Studios. Mm -hmm. And they have a son named Kirill Daniel that was an artist by education. And then he got interested in tattooing, and he was the host of that tattoo show that um, Jack Rudy and us went over to hmm. in Russia. Okay. So he was the host. <laughs> but it was put on by... Gala Records and Gala Movie Studios. And um, so I gave them Galena Daniela's um, <laughs> card or information. And then there was a guy that, <clears throat> well, when I received the flyer from somebody about the Russian tattoo show, um, going to be the first one, mm -hmm. I got busy and I faxed it real quick. And told him, I don't know what the hell I told him. But anyhow, it was enough to get hired to be the English-speaking liaison for <laughs> the press. Sure. And so, at that time, Russia had just sort of turned over out of the Iron Curtain. And if you could speak English, you were sort of under suspect or want to try to learn how to speak English. Okay. Because the Iron Curtain. And um, so anyhow, I got tattooed on my stomach. Diana, Odier, Plume, Grass, Chicken Today, Feathers Tomorrow. And her name was Galena uh, instead of Gaina. So she seen that, and every time she seen me, she sort of jerk up my shirt, and take a ballpoint pen and <laughs> change it to her name. And not every time she met me, but right. So anyhow, I had an interpreter, and um, so I had an interpreter for an hour or so one one person, and then all of a sudden there was a little guy that popped up, and he had like a, I don't know, a, a, like a an old tugboat captain's hat on and stuff. And that sort of, he reminded me of like of an English tugboat captain or something. Sounds like a hipster tattoo. So he was with me all day. And to sit down and do the P's and Q's like for a television or something like that, there's some discussion and some game plan has to be laid out. So we needed an, I needed an interpreter. And uh, so at the end of the day, he hands me his card and he says, I wasn't, I'm not really your interpreter. 
but I got placed as that way because I wanted to know you. And he says, there's a man in Moscow that wants to meet you tomorrow morning. And he wants to show you his museum. So his, he was a colonel in the militia. And, he's named, and the KBG is on the outside of the country. The militia is the state police. And this man's name was Yuri Dubyajin. And if you ever saw a movie called Gorky Park, um, in Gorky Park, have you seen the movie? No. There was three corpses found in Gorky Park in the wintertime. And when the snow melted, they were discovered. And their faces was removed. <laughs> and their fingers were cut off. So you couldn't identify them. Uh-huh. Well, this man specializes in catching serial killers, and he also builds skulls up because there's a formula, and then you put a, a skin on them or something to you, they're recognizable for <laughs> missing people. And so he's the fellow that wanted to meet me. So I went over there, and uh, he had drawers full of human skin that had been cut off of cadavers. Um drawers full of them and then with writing on the back of them and he had caught maybe a couple thousand women he had caught i forget how many serial killers but they their serial killers over there that's got hundreds of their credit mm -hmm. were you uh, so you dropped into russia and somebody takes you from the airport to the hotel and then takes you to go see this guy or what do you how do you well, get no, it was after the first day of the show uh -huh. and he went it was saturday morning we went over there so he came and sought you out the interpreter did mm. so he must have read about a newspaper i was going to be there or something and then introduced you to this guy and that was his interest in tattooing was catching serial killers holy shit you know so i i give him his name and address and Galena Daniela's yeah. address. And I don't know just exactly the where the juice come from, but we were invited <laughs> to the Russian, you right. know. And um, so then we went down there and we flew the longest flight I've ever been on in my mm -hmm. life because I met up with, a, with my travel assistant, the college professor from Chicago. And... Um, in Los Angeles, then we flew from Los Angeles to Miami, and then from Miami to Lima, Peru. No, wait a minute, Santiago, uh, Santiago Chile, mm -hmm. and then Lima, Peru, and then all the way down to the tip of South America, which is uh, a Puna Arenas, Patagonia, <laughs> and then from there we had a plane. It was all she set everything up. Had at least a four, a two-engine airplane to fly from there to Antarctica. Wow! So they wrote books that um, that had um, you could do Europe for five dollars a day. Well, this one only cost twenty-eight hundred dollars a day. Oh <laughs> wow! <laughs> what time we left here? The time we got back. Wow! What time? What what tattoo did you do in? Uh I in autographed Antarctica. her leg and wrote Antarctica. And that was in 2014, right? 2014? Yeah, 2014. Yeah. Amazing. January. Yeah. And when you hear, well, I think it 
that article you read tonight. Uh-huh. Said about because when you about going to Australia and you're not standing upside down. Right. That's the nice thing about traveling. I mean, you know, I can I can never get things straightened out until you until you go there. Sure. Patagonia. I want to go to Patagonia one of these days. Then south of Patagonia, there's an Argentinian Patagonia and a Chilean Patagonia. They got the best trout fishing in the world there. Um, they got dinosaur digs down there. Uh-huh. They got the, the Patagonian raptor that's supposedly bigger than the T-Rex. <laughs> but we didn't have time to do that. But we had to when we got there. We had to we had to have a four day window because the weather there is no um, weather reports. There isn't a six o'clock news in Antarctica. Right. right. And I'm sure that those scientific stations communicate with one another. Sure. But there is no weather report that comes out of there. Hmm. If you do that, you got to I guess. Probably nowadays online, you could go check and they must put their weather up or something. But uh, we had to have a four-day window. And that's how much the thing changes. Then we got back. The guy that hauled us in from the airport was uh, a Patagonian guy with a, I don't know what kind of a car he had, but a nice four-door sedan. And um, like a town car or something, but it wasn't. So we hired him, and he took us over to Terro del Frego, and that's a triangular-shaped island that is the tip of South America. Mm-hmm. So when you go around the Horn, you had to go around that Terro del Frego. <laughs> then between Patagonia and Terro del Frego is the Magellan Straits, which is a calmer way to go around the tip of South America. takes too long. <laughs> so the sailing ships used to go around that. Um, Drake's Passage, they call it, because Sir Francis Drake went around there. And it is hell. <laughs> you know, it's... What did, what did it feel like when you had accomplished that, tattooing that, your name and 2000, Antarctica 2014, and knowing that you had done that and probably being the only guy that had done that, what did you feel at that point? Well, you know, it was good. Yeah. You know, how, how, how could it be any other way? Right. Um, we went in there and... Uh, uh, it was having a birthday party that hmm. night. And it was also, these guys were ornithologists or something like that. The, the guys that were at the scientific station then were bird experts. And they had some guests there from Germany. So they're scientists. And highly educated people are pretty highbrow. And then when the tattoo thing reared its ugly head to them, they um, were, you know, noses at the air. But as the birthday party progressed and um, they got spilling a little vodka, (laughs) uh, then, well, the word chicken shit and alcohol has got more people tattooed in the world than any one item, I think. (laughs) And I'm not... I'm just saying that sort of facetiously, but so anyhow, they started getting a little tipsy from this birthday party, and then they started thinking that tattooing was a good idea. 
Well, I'd already did my tattoo, and I'd put all my gear away. So, What machines did you use? I actually used rotaries. What did you use? What kind? The, the 41 cent or one cent machine from China, or what did you use? I was on the internet one night, and it was a... Um, I very seldom look at tattoo stuff, uh-huh. but I got antique and then vintage tattoo machines. I'll look at once in a while. But all these, you could, you could get into any category you want if you're worried right. <clears throat> so I was going down through there, and here is a machine that's listed for one cent, a rotary machine. It came out of Hong Kong. <laughs> and that's the one I carry with me, and then I carry a, ever showed you that one I think so much of that electromagnetic I'll show it to you in a little while um, so it was one cent and it was seven dollars postage from Hong Kong and there was two minutes left and I'm a big spender you know so I bid on it and by God I won it <laughs> but when I went to pay for it with PayPal it was too available so I'm a big spender so I went and so I got for two dollars and seven cents. I got these two rotary machines, and they run on less than nine volts. So, a friend of mine, Clay Decker, is makes CNC machines, CNC flatbed engraving machines, and he's a whiz kid, and he has these catalogs and stuff, and he had them with him, and he fixed me up with two <coughs> power units with an in and then a potentiometer and everything else and then an output and those machines would run on nine volts so I made a portable kit using these little units it was about two inches long an inch wide and um, I don't know six dollars a piece or something it was something (laughs) but he he had them left over and he gave them to me so I made this portable kit and that's what I used down there so I went through some experimentals of, of <coughs> putting them in the, in the freezer, these batteries. And um, so I didn't buy, I, these were lithium batteries, but it's illegal to fly with lithium batteries because they have <laughs> a tendency to blow up. So, and lithium, nine volts is nine volts, whatever, the power source is. So I figured, well, if I can't get lithium batteries in Pune Arenas, I can get regular batteries. And I'll buy a half a dozen, that'll be enough. But with lithium batteries, that machine would run a little over an hour. Mm-hmm. But I went ahead and put those in standard batteries in the freezer and then bring them out and run that machine with them and tested them. So that's what I used down there. Amazing. You know, you could those rotary machines nowadays. You could get a rhesus monkey tattooing for you. <laughs> what was it like tattooing it uh, on the pike? Well, um, you know, I every time in any place you go, you hear about you ought to have been here five years ago. Sure, it never goddamn fails. <laughs> I wish I would have known that the good old days was so good, I would have enjoyed it more. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Bert Grimm was down when I first went to work down there. 
<coughs> I went to work in a shop that was five foot, it belonged to Bert Grimm, it was five foot wide and seven foot deep. Had a private street entrance. Yes. A private street entrance. And um, then after I proved myself, then Bert let me come down to the big shop. <coughs> so the Pike was a, a permanent circus sideshow uh, that um, was um, there the year around. And the street that I was on, if you went off of Ocean Avenue, the main drag, and down this incline, there were steps on both sides, you went straight to the Cyclone Racer. That's the roller coaster. <coughs> and on the way down there, before you got to the Cyclone Racer, you crossed the Midway. And they had like a permanent sideshow. They had all kind of throw a baseball at a, you know, bowling pins or something and knocking yeah. them over. So the whole thing was there. And I sort of liked it. I, I love Galveston, Texas. Galveston, Texas has got 22 miles of seawall and 22 miles of restaurants, hotels. I like that hustle bustle stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, my first wife said, the problem with you is that you see the spotlights but you don't look past them and see the dirt in the corners. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, who wants to see the dirt in the corners? Right. I went to Rio one time, and somebody I got back, and they said, oh, didn't you see the poverty down there? And I said, I kept my eyes uh, closed in the taxi cab till I got mm -hmm. to Ifanema Beach. <laughs> There's no poverty at Ifanema Beach. And our hotel was right Ifanema Beach and Copacabana Beach go in at about a 45-degree angle. And uh, our hotel was just about where the two took off. And uh, so we went down there in some internet business. And uh, so, um, yeah, I didn't see the poverty. Just <laughs> keep your eyes closed. Yeah. yeah don't, don't get me wrong. I have... I'm not totally apathetic with poverty and mm -hmm. poor people and this, that, and the other thing, but I got pooped out in the right spot <laughs> with the right parents. Sure. Had the best parents in the world. When they died, the last two human beings died mm. because the rest left here is just animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, they were. They were like... My mom was a non-religious saint, I used to call her, because she used to, she lived by the golden rule. You can't say nothing bad about, if you, don't say anything, let's see, if you haven't got something good to say about don't somebody, say don't at say all. anything at all. That's the golden rule, mm -hmm. in a way. How was your dad? He was a salty little guy. <laughs> he was a, a, a contractor. Uh, he was one that when you went by his job site, he was out cat calling at the girls, about five foot five tall. I remember when I was a kid, he was built like a little Hercules because he worked hard, never listed a weight in his life because mm. he thought anybody had a swimming pool and he could afford anything. I mean, he was like, but we lived down by the railroad tracks and his equipment yard was down there. 
And that's where he kept his bulldozers and his crane that he had and dump trucks and things. And who best can watch your stuff better than you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so keeping up with the Joneses just wasn't in their book. Right. Which is good. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Hoyt Axon wrote a song called I don't need no Cadillac cars. I don't need no diamond rings. I just want to drink my Ripple wine down at the Lightning Bar. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. Yep. You don't need all the trappings. Life advice. What do you, what do you, you told me once buy real estate. <laughs> well, these young guys will come to me and they show me their portfolio. And I'll look at a couple pages and I'll say, well, you're good enough to make a living. I've said this before here on this interview, but um, so then I'll say, well, you didn't come by and show me this portfolio for no reason whatsoever, so I take it you want my advice, what to do with your career. Yeah. I said, well, you work hard, you do the best you can, save your money, and buy real estate. Now, we're sitting in a building right now that I paid in 1977. It came out of escrow on December 12th, 1977. Happened to be my mother's birthday, but that was just <laughs> a coincidence. I paid $150,000 for it, and I've turned down two and a quarter million for it. Were you freaked out when you bought it? 150. Were you freaked out? By 150 when you bought it, or were you at that point established enough where that was an investment? Well, I had a home knew? over in Sleepy Hollow in Marin County, mm-hmm. and um, it put it up for it put it up for sale. I was coming back on a red eye from New York, and uh, I went. So I got there was a newspaper, so the thing had made a turnaround. And in the back of the seat was a Sunday paper because this was on Monday, left Sunday night, 12 o'clock or thereabouts. So I'm looking at the damn paper, and it was like, a, you know, they used to do it about an hour faster mm-hmm. than they do now, but they've cut the speed down because of the expense of gasoline. Well, anyhow, I looked at that paper, and then I got the, oh, the miscellaneous for sale, and because um, I don't like to buy anything unless it's hot used or wholesale. <laughs> and uh, and I, the hot is no, I don't buy hot stuff. Well, they rack your butt with buying hot stuff. <laughs> but, you, you know, can get in trouble. Used, you can get in trouble. You don't want to go out there and, you know, pay the, the top dollar. No. My dad bought used cars. But they were a year or two old. But, boy, sure. you take a beating when you buy a new car. Yes, you do. I used to lease cars for years because it was a tax advantage to it. But the car I drive now was, uh, I bought it used. Yeah. So, um, senior moment. Still in this building. Oh, still so I'm still in this building. And you, you, you told me that you are Thursday to Monday. That's your life. It's convention life right now. Pretty much that's the way it is right now, or well, are you I, slowing that down? I, that, no, that's how I, uh, um, you know, judge my 
calibrate my life is by weekends. So, um, well, I left on uh, Wednesday, um, and I, I don't know what the hell the date was. I could look at my computer and my travel schedule. But um, on a Wednesday, then I got to Honolulu, and I did that show, and then I left on Wednesday and wound up in Seattle and then came back on Tuesday. So that was, I was gone well, a little less than two weeks. Right. But I've been gone like six weeks. If one, one year I did 32 conventions. Are there still places that give you a wow factor or is it just new experiences for you these days? You know, it's like a reoccurring family. <laughs> but because I very seldom go to, no, I won't be very, I'm going to go to Rock Springs, Wyoming. The, my, op, my birthday is on October the 7th. So I know that I'm going to be on the road between Rock Springs, Wyoming and Las Vegas. We're going to drive down there. Um, but Rock Springs, Wyoming is wide spot in the road. <laughs> and a lady by the name of Sharon Browse from Salt Lake City, ASI Tattooing, um, her and her husband, Don Browse, they own it. And um, and then Judy Parker's going to fly up there. Uh-huh. So I'm going to ride up with Judy Parker and Sharon Browse to... So I joked with the guy, and I said uh, about because uh, I get my airfare paid and my hotel room, and then depending on the show and negotiating with right uh, how much you know cash you get on the side, but anyhow, um, so I made up this joke about that Rock Spring, Wyoming, because it's a very small town. They only have one hooker, but she's seventy-two. <laughs> <laughs> And but she's thinking about retiring, so you got to make jokes about everything, right? And uh, so then we're going to take and drive to Las Vegas and do that APT, got it? Uh, workshop down, and I'm going to go down and do a, a talk. And um, what are you going to be speaking about down there? Tattooing between World War Two and now. You and uh, who would be, I would say you and Chuck Eldridge would be two of the top experts in America of American tattooing. Are there, do you, do you look at American and European? Do you see the differences in those different oh, as sure. things? Yeah. What, what's, what's it, been? But it's, it's a regional thing in a way, but, but still it's all the same, you know, and especially has well, it all kind of come along at the same pace? European tattooing and American tattooing, Japanese tattooing, all kind of seen no, explosions? Japanese, you know, they, they, they hand poked for years mm-hmm. manually. Um, American tattoo artists uh, standardized the tattoo machine, and all tattoo machines were derivatives of doorbells. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the horseshoe magnet, whether permanent or electromagnetic, um, it's a hor- it, it's a horseshoe magnet, and you have to have a magnetic path, and you know, so and doorbells work on that. Is the, the bell that brought you into school, or right? The playground pulled a box off. There'd be two electromagnetic coils in them. So that's principles used in a lot of things. So the Americans standardized their tattoo machine uh, around World War One. 
The Brits didn't standardize their tattoo machine after World War II, but they had a few things working against them. And one of them is they have, we have two threads. We have coarse and SAE and um, threads. And, and SAE is a finer thread. And what happens is that the British have five different threads. Hmm. And uh, Wentworth, and I forget whatever. But if you ever worked on an English motorcycle, they run you nuts. <laughs> and uh, so what happens is that uh, they didn't really standardize their machine for a long, long time. So that sort of capsulized them. Where American tattoo artists were sort of more open, and there was, well, there's always been suppliers. There's right. always people that sold tattoo machines. Yeah. And built tattoo machines, and uh, I have over eleven hundred in my collection. <laughs> right, but I got the world's largest. You know, there's some people out there that's got some big collections, but I don't think anybody can can scoop me. Uh, but anyhow, and you're involved in even today's tattooing. You just were out at FK Irons Factory. Um, what do you think about guys like Gaston, guys like Franco Viscovi? You know, high-end coil builders like Mike Pike and Sessafari, where they're taking tattoo machines. Well, truthfully speaking, it's not the tattoo machine. It's the person's hand that it's in mm -hmm. and the person that adjusts it. Um, I mean, I've studied tattoo machines for years and years and years, and I always run around looking for the holy grail of electromagnetic metals and what gives you more pull for ampere turn and coils and things like that. I used to buy, uh, try to seek out uh, early 1800s, um, not early 1800s, but late 1800s um, books that written by physicists on electromagnetism and because I thought that, you know, the technology hadn't developed like it is now. But I'll tell you one thing, physicists' minds work on a level that we have no idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how they come up with all this theory, you know. Well, guys are reaching out to, I mean, Franco in particular talked to me on his podcast about talking to engineers from NASA about his machines and shaving off, you know, shaving off certain weights and and how this thing sits in your hand and shit like that there people are reaching out now and machine builders in this day are talking to those high-end experts they are you know but they're quasi wasting their time how come it's just the simplest device in the world there is overthinking a, it they're building too many bells and whistles in it um, but getting back to these early physicists, there's a, a heat that's generated within electromagnetic mass is called a heat. It's called hysteresis. Mm -hmm. And a hysteresis is, is the molecular mass in the metal is turning in there, and it's the friction of those molecules turning that cause that heat and everything else. Um, there's stainless steel, 300 series stainless steel is non-magnetic. And if 
and a magnet, a permanent magnet, won't identify it. With the 400 series, Martin Settig stainless steel, a magnet will uh, identify it and it'll stick onto it. So I'm running around for years and years and years looking for the holy grail of, and you want the, the simplest, crudest iron that you can find because the molecules and the metal don't have a memory. Whereas you get carbon steels, they have a memory and you put them into a, an electromagnetic path and it will become a permanent magnet. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, one of the machine builders, a well-known machine builder, put out some good machines, Dennis Dwyer down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. He made all of his electromagnetic parts out of 416 stainless steel, martinetic stainless steel. So if you go through and put it on a meter to check the electromagnetic pull, in the, and I can't think of the word this very minute, um, it's different, but goddamn, his tattoo machines run just as good as anybody else's. <laughs> so that's when I just blew it, blew it out. It is, I don't use 416 stainless, but any kind of a crude iron will work. So fine. I mean, I went out there and talked to those. I never talked to anybody from NASA or anything else. Sure. But I talked to a lot of engineers and electric engineers and boom 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 you know do you think that there still can be advances with the machine i mean even thinking back to its simplest point but really looking at how it this the weight of it and how it sits in your hand to reduce kind of the impact that it has over the year well when i taught seminars on uh, on machines in which i do you know on a, but i don't do them at shows anymore because uh but it wound up that uh, I always used to preach and believe that nothing would replace the twin coil electromagnetic tattoo machine. Mm -hmm. And rotaries have been used for years, and especially in Europe, and Brits are notoriously lazy. And after World War II, they put out a, a, a servo motor that ran on 24 volts uh, that was about an inch and a half in diameter and about two inches long or less. And they, there was just millions of them in the market. And the Brits do the fact that they like to get around things the easy way. <laughs> and there's a certain amount of maintenance and care. And, and then you have to learn about adjusting tattoo machines. You're dealing with spring tensions. You're dealing with this, that, and another thing. Um, a rotary machine is pretty clear cut, but you're running off an eccentric off of the rot. You're, you're converting a rotary motion into a reciprocating motion, and um, they always there's a wobble in the needle bar. Um, if it's too extreme, it will shake the needle, the ink off the needles and you don't get the concentration of the ink in the skin. There's a lot of things. And then they wind up um, 
some of them, most of them would have, would dig a trench in the skin. Hmm. And down at the, mm -hmm. when it healed up, down at the bottom of that trench was this dried skin. <laughs> um, where a tattoo was a, put on by an educated hand and the um, properly adjusted electromagnetic tattoo machine, the outline is not a ditch, it's welded up. And it's huh. not welded, and I'm talking about minutely. It's not scar tissue. It's that machine has impregnated so much pigment into the skin that it, it causes a raised line. Mm -hmm. But it's so minute, you just, you know, you don't see it casually. Is there a machine builder that you, um, including yourself, who you think revolutionized kind of at a, you see there was a distinct increase in the level of, of the playing field when his machines were introduced or his ideas were introduced? You know, I know so many machine builders, I hate to mention anybody, but I think in common agreement with machine builders, there is no secrets nowadays because of that internet. Mm -hmm. And I haven't got a religious bone in my body, but if there was ever a devil that invented that goddamn cyberspace. Um, and the quotation marks. You like secrets. That was the thing about tattooing. There was the mystique involved. There's a mystique still, yeah, Lyle. To a certain degree, there's some mystique still because I still believe and question whether you have a hidden bunker worth of all your shit. And there's still these stories floating around tattooing that have been put yeah. on for oh, years. Yeah, that's, that's, and there's a mystique to it. And I think that still... I never would let Spalding Supremes be worked in my tattoo shop <laughs> because that, and Huck Spalding and I were good friends, but he was on the back cover of all the tattoo magazines. And I don't want some chump coming into my tattoo shop and standing there looking over the counter and say, oh, that's a Spalding Supreme. They're not supposed to know nothing, <laughs> you know? When did you see that they started knowing something? Was it when the internet hit? After the internet? Oh, hit? I don't know. It, it's just through the years it be, sort of become collective knowledge or something. Sure. You know. But anyhow, of machine builders, I I wound up getting a tattoo machine that I'm going to show you here in a few minutes when we get through this interview that blew my skirt up. I'll tell you, I mean, it's really unique, and it is the idea that that it's any different when people say. If they build tattoo machines, they're sort of misleading you. They're not truly building a tattoo machine. They're gen they're frame designers. Okay. Because the the working parts that frame has to has to supply you seven positions that will hold the parts. So one moving part, that's the armature bar, moves. So they're frame builders. Because you could build a frame at a horse doo-doo if you want to. It doesn't depend. And then have your seven positions and then buy a set of coils from a supplier. And all the rest of the stuff. And a lot of them do that. But they're quote-unquote machine builders. Um, 
So the one machine builder that that most everybody will agree that is a probably is John Clark, who lives in Hatch, Texas. If you see him walking down the street, he looks like John Wayne. <laughs> and uh, he will go, you don't see him nowadays that much, but you would be walking down the road and you'd see some garbage cans sitting out there. So um, have a IBM tower sitting there. <laughs> So he'd go over there and pinch that IBM tower and he'd take it and tear it apart. Then he'd go down to um, Harbor Freight mm -hmm. and buy one of those pieces of junk and uh, or inexpensive milling equipment, and, and, you know, but it, when you, the price sort of di dictates the precision of something. Different. Absolutely. I ripped apart a 51 Ford truck with a bunch of Harbor Freight tools. Okay. <laughs> and um, so then he goes through and programs it and everything else and will make a CNC machine. And he's got one down there, at least he, he might have one that's got a lot more now because I've been down there in a few years, um, that made seven moves. Hmm. You know, so he'd, he would... Uh, put a frame in. So he doesn't do that much innovative stuff. I mean, he hasn't innovated the electromagnetic things, but he winds his own coils. Um, handcrafted. He goes, he's he's a handcrafted. Yeah. And, but yeah. he does, you know, some, un, you know, some unique stuff. He, he put out a machine that was called a forward facing coil. Okay. And, um, of just using one coil, and uh, that's possible to run a tattoo machine with just sure. one coil and two, but you still have to have the magnetic path that turns it into like what a horseshoe magnet right. is. And um, so then he goes out and he's gonna cast some frames. Well, he's got his blast furnace is built in a five gallon can that he's mixed up some, busted up a bunch of fire bricks <laughs> and made this blast furnace and he has a vacuum cleaner motor on it. And uh, it, you talk about grassroots construction, but still, he's got that technology also. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about that being able to take and make these things out of what you have around you. You know, Rick Walters talked about that in the podcast I did with him. I you know, interviewed him down in Southern California at Sullen headquarters. And, you know, he talked about every guy I've apprenticed, I've taught how to make everything that they need to tattoo with. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful part about it because mm -hmm. tattooing, you're just, that's why I've loved it because you wound up, it's, you have so many latitudes of things to master that's connected with your trade. It, it comes back to you sitting right. in a chair putting on a tattoo. Now, if you want to talk about other machine builders, John Clark's on one end. Uh -huh. But the finished product is superb. Then there's a guy that tattoos in Date County, Florida, right outside of Miami, and his name is Gaston Siciliano. 
Yeah, F.K. Irons. F.K. Irons. Now, he came here 18 years ago, couldn't speak English, uh, speaks English. He has a, uh, well, he's running out of room now, but in there, he must have, I know he's got a few million dollars worth of CNC machines. He puts out the most fine, high-grade, you know, beautiful equipment. Yeah, and I what he told me was they're the only 100% in-house product, that machine that's research and development. Everything from start to finish gets done in-house at FK Irons. Give it to you just a little bit. There's one thing that is done outside of his factory, and that is powder coating. Okay. There's no powder coating or anodizing finishes done in Dake County. <laughs> and he's in Dake County. <laughs> and that's because of the pollution. Sure. Things. But anyhow. Amazing, amazing stuff, though. It's it's pretty cool to see and i'm sure oh, he, you know he seeing the fine you know some tattoo equipment and things like that has to look like dental equipment yeah. surgical equipment yeah if somebody headed towards your mouth <laughs> a dentist and he had a something made out of a horseshoe with a whole bunch of bird yeah. shit welding all over it i'm afraid i'd have to get a new dentist sure but there's some people that but there's with that machine that's got all the bird shit welding all over it could be adjusted if it has the ingredients and the positions to hold the component parts. Right. Be just as good at tattooing as one is. Bill Jones said that tattoo machines are like women. They don't have to be beautiful to work hard. <laughs> now that's not a chauvinistic statement, and I didn't say it, but Bill Jones said it. Why do we take this thing tattooing? Why do we take it so serious? What what is it about tattooing that gets us that it's gets like people? It's like joining the priesthood. You are a witch doctor. You have to live up to your position in life. Mm. What's next for you, Lyle? What what is the the immediate future hold for you? Um, looking back and taking all of your experience and 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 knowledge, what does the future hold for you and where do you see you in tattooing i'm gonna put a tattoo on the moon <laughs> i love it you've always shot for the stars you know why not shoot for the moon well you know they're, they're always having budget problems with nasa and stuff like that why don't they have a lottery sell lottery tickets they got an extra seat mm -hmm. now we're not gonna have any criteria if you buy a ticket and you win and you got a bad heart or you got this, that, and another thing, tough shit, we're strapping you in there, you're going. Mm -hmm. Of course, there ought to be a disclaimer about that when you, you know, they could raise a lot of money because there's a, what, the guy with, that runs Virgin Airlines or something, Branson? Sure. He's going to, wants to do something like that. Yeah. You, I, you know what? I think you'd be the first in line. Adventurer's spirit, Lyle. I'd go. Sure. I'm not an adventurer, though. Yes, you are. Well, I don't know. You've I, had you a know good... The big the adventure I went on, it sort of made a pussycat out of me, because I am a pussycat. Um, I don't want to get in any situation. I can't get on my 
today, cell phone, and call a helicopter in to get my ass out of there. Exactly. You know? I like that you still got a helicopter on speed dial. That's what I like about it. That's it. Boom, boom. (laughs) So it's just, um, but I was a Marine in Korea in 1951. And that was an adventure. I'll tell you, you an go. adventure that you'll never forget in your life. And so that they made a pussycat out of me. Yeah. People say, let's go camping. Um, let's go on a picnic. You know what they're telling me? Let's go eat in the dirt. <laughs> I've eaten the dirt before. Right. You know, it isn't that. So I don't really consider myself an adventurer. Right. But Last uh, Last question, what's the best thing tattooing's given you? What now? What's the best thing that tattooing has given you? My life. Without tattooing, my, my life would be a hollow shell. Mm. There you go. Well, okay. thank you, Lyle. Uh, you know what? This has been an amazing conversation for me, and I hope that everybody listening enjoy has enjoyed it. Um, I appreciate and... Uh, Everything that you've you've talked about tonight, Lyle, I appreciate you inviting me into your home and allowing me to do this interview again. If you hadn't been here, I'd been laying in bed right now. <laughs> What's well, quarter to twelve? Reading a book about the Civil War. There you go. There's a guy who wrote a series of books, and I don't know what his name is. And I've read two of them, and one of them is What You Don't Know About. That's the name of the books. And the one I'm reading right now is. Over in Hawaii, there was a went out, and there was a guy that you can turn that off. This is just it's bullshit. Well, it's bullshit. It's the truth. But who the hell wants to listen to it? Probably everybody. Other than you, you're a captive audience. <laughs> no, I love it. Keep going. Well, anyhow, I went out, and uh, I was running around with one of the promoters of the show, and we went and did a radio interview, and then we were going back, and he had the van, and he went and they loaded some stuff up. So I walked into. Um, um, the garage, and I was looking around, and there's a whole bunch of books in there. There's a double garage, the guy on Dolly Parks in the driveway. So there was a book there, and it was a pictorial, a big book. Had a lot of pictures in it, but a lot of text. And it was the 13 biggest battles of the Civil War. So I had a couple relatives that was in the Civil War. And um, so... I picked it up and I was looking at it and uh, then I said, can I borrow that and I'll leave it over at Kevin's house. And uh, he said, my dad has given all these books away and you can, uh, well, he didn't say I could have it, but I was going to leave it over at Kevin's house. Then I met his dad at the tattoo show and uh, asked him about it. He said, no, you can have it. If you want. <laughs> and so and he's an ex-Marine. And there's an old saying about once a Marine, always a Marine. Well, there's a lot of people that's a lot more gung-ho than I am because mm-hmm. I think if they send somebody looking for me to go into one of these wars that they're having now, all these little petty wars, they send somebody looking for me, there would be two of us missing out <laughs> of the war effort. Me and the guy they sent looking for me. Fighting for peace is like having orgies for virginity. <laughs> last thoughts, last thoughts and advice before we turn this off. What advice? Yeah, last thoughts and advice. What if you were to 
if you were to give off your last thoughts and advice just to somebody out there, what would it be? Get an education. Get something they can't take away from you. If you want to be a tattoo artist, fine. That's a, it, but make it an avocation instead of a profession. Because I truthfully think that tattooing got too popular. It went from a compulsion, part of the uniform of a red-blooded American boy or something like that. And then women's liberation come by and the girls started getting little rosebuds and butterflies. They would have something that people would be looking at on the nude beach. And then they... It got too popular. They just started overdoing it. And tattooing's got way too popular. The Internet's taken the mystique out of it. So I think that tattooing is not going to be as popular. I shouldn't say this because I'm sort of like um, degrading something that I really like. But I'm just, you asked me a question, so I'm giving it to you. Um there isn't going to be as many people getting tattooed in the future as there has been mm-hmm. in the last 10, 15 years, something like that. Um, and I, I almost see it, and, and I talk to a lot of people, and I get that reaction. Hmm. So it got too popular. Right. And what can what can we do about it? Anything? Nothing. Right. it out. People say, oh, we'll, we'll come back. Yeah, I'm 83. It'll come back in about 30 years. I remember when every fool that was walking up and down the street was wearing bell-bottom trousers. Now, tell me, how many bell-bottom trousers did you see today? So that was the bad thing about it, was tattooing went from, I wouldn't say a compulsion. I mean, God, I saw those tattoos and those servicemen coming back, and I had to have one. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even really think about having one. They were just hot shit. And then now they're a fashion statement. And fashions go in and out. And it's, you know. You think it's going to get back to what a, what youth saw it as? Well, if they do, there's going to be a lot of people out there picking shit with the chickens. <laughs> because that was the other thing that happened to tattooing. It, it's become oversaturated with tattoo artists. I mean, where I go to shows, I was two in a row just last weekend and weekend before last. There was more tattoo shops in that one convention room than there was in the whole United States when I started tattooing. <laughs> Crazy. Because each major city... It, they were generally in seaports. Mm-hmm. Now, Bert Grimm operated for years in St. Louis, but that was a seaport because he had Mississippi River boats. Right. And, um, but San Diego, the Pike and Long Beach, um, San Francisco, yeah, Portland, Seattle, you know. Um, we're tattoo centers, but they'd only have like one or two tattoo artists in there. Yeah. And down on Market Street, when I first got my first tattoo in 1946, maybe there was eight down there in arcades. Yeah. Maybe ten. I don't know exactly how many. And, um, but they stand out. Yeah. Well, for good or bad, whatever this explosion is and what the future holds, we shall see. 
but uh, tattooing's good to us right now, and and well, it's it's, it's been know. good to you, and and man, I just appreciate you coming coming on and talking with me. Okay, man. well, glad, and then thank you, tattooing, and I'm not religious or anything else, but well, if there's one God, which some people believe in, mm -hmm. there's got to be a hundred and one, because there ain't no just one of anything, <laughs> and if there's a 101 gods there has to be a tattoo god and that tattoo god looked down on me and said that boy needs help and give me the zap good night folks <laughs>